Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 162 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Lime Polymath, an interview with Freddie Kimmel. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. So Matt, if you believe that success leaves clues, this is a podcast for you. This is a fellow who is as low as you can get. He began the podcast by sharing with us that he was on his knees bargaining with God for his life, and he's now 136% better, in his own words, than he was before he began his Lyme disease journey. Rich, Freddie was such an inspiration for me because everything that could have went wrong for Freddie went wrong for him. He had heavy metal toxicity. He had a horrible case of testicular cancer. And then he had chronic Lyme probably for almost a decade, it sounds like. And yet he was still able to recover. So this gives me hope and hopefully gives everybody listening hope that it is possible to reach remission and even feel better than your pre-Lyme state. So folks, we have to give you a bit of a warning. This is the longest podcast we've ever done. It's more than two hours of goodness that you don't want to miss. You really want to listen to every word. And without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce to you the Lyme polymath, Freddie Kimmel. Hey, Freddie, welcome to the podcast. Honored to be here. We're really honored to have you today too, Freddie. And I think I want to start differently with you than we have with anyone else because you've had such a difficult journey and your low was so low that I'd really like to start there. So can you share with our audience where you were when you were at your worst, what your diagnosis was like, what you were feeling like and what impact that was having on you and your family? Oh my goodness, my lowest low. Well, that kind of lands us right in the middle. You know, at my lowest low, I I was to a place where I really couldn't eat any food. I was down to seven foods that my body could tolerate. I had just moved through the experience of metastatic cancer. And that was four rounds of chemotherapy for testicular cancer, followed up by three different surgeries to remove parts of my intestine. I had had a positive diagnosis for Lyme disease, chronic fatigue, and I was stumbling around New York City. I was wandering 52nd street between 9th and 10th Avenue. And I had come across this statue in a monastery and it was covered with snow, beautiful, beautiful lighting. And it was a point where I had just dropped to my knees and at, I'm going to say this is about, I'm about 35 years old and the level of fatigue and the dissonance in my brain. It was scary to me. I often thought that if someone had walked up to me and tried to steal my wallet, there's nothing I could do. The joint pain in my body, the dysfunction in the the cognitive dissonance. And I just remember looking at this um, this statue and just praying and said, oh my God, if I ever, if I ever get beyond this place, I am going to be a lighthouse for other human beings, no matter what. I, I, am, I am a person of service. If the power greater than me can help me out of this hole, I'm going to do it. And, and that was really, that was my lowest low. I remember that moment right down to the, it's funny you say that because there's nowhere else my brain goes, right down to that, the eye of the needle. So let's talk about how you got to that stage where you were bargaining with God and promising to become a light to um, this community and talk about your background. Where did you come from and what 
was your life like before you started on this journey that brought you to your knees at that statue before a monastery? Well, I was, uh, you know, a very happy child, definitely wired for joy. I talked too much in school. I was always reprimanded for being overly social. My teacher said, this kid's a late bloomer because he's got all the spark in the world, but we cannot get him to focus. And that took me to having a great group of friends growing up and being extremely social and being involved in the high school musicals, theater, singing. I love to sing. I love to be on stage. I had this wonderful teacher in my network, one of the best teachers I've ever had, the best, Mr. Dan Burke. And he pulled me in and he said, you should, you should do theater. So I, in, in high school, I was so involved in these plays and the musicals and it just opened up, right, this social bubble and a way of expression. And it's funny, when I started doing that, my grades started to get really good. I started to really come out of my shell and I took that, I took that love and that skill. And I, and I, I, and I, through college and undergrad stumbling around different types of majors, I decided I was going to go to New York city and try to be on Broadway as crazy as that sounds, because I really didn't have the training. I had, uh, some natural inherent, inherent, very raw talent. However, you know, New York City, the talent pool, <laughs> it's incredible. So I moved to the city right around, it was a month after 9-11. You know, I had worked in a theater in New Hampshire in the woods during the summer before that 2011. And I was around all these amazing actors and everybody was going to New York City. I was like, I'm going to do this too. So I packed up everything and a month after 9-11, even though it was a, a situation in the world where you could easily be deterred, are people really going to go try to sing and dance right now? The, the world was in total chaos. And I drove down to New York City, building still smoking. I'll never forget it. The sky was filled with helicopters. It looked like fireflies. And and you just went, you know, I remember driving across the bridge into the city into my new apartment in Queens and setting down my bags and, and day one, just going out and I went to an audition my very first day. And then subsequently, then you got to find a job. You know, I think I had 370 bucks in my bank account. I had nothing <laughs> in retrospect, nothing. I don't know what I was thinking. And I remember being in and around the people of New York City auditioning, looking for work, figuring out how I'm going to make it. And there was a sadness in the city then. There was a stress. There was an energy that I was, I was picking up, never really tapping into the fact that as an artist or a storyteller that I was a natural empath. And, you know, I remember going out, looking for jobs, auditioning, and I would come home at the end of the day and I would get into the bathroom and I would take a shower and I would be hit with grief, like soul crushing grief so much that I would just lay on the, the floor of the bathtub. I mean, until like the water went cold, which it, it didn't go cold in New York city. You know, you could take a hot shower for two hours and then I would just get out of the bathroom. I wouldn't tell anybody about it. I would just go about my day. And this happened for about a month until I woke up one morning with crippling joint pain every single joint in my body 
my knees, my hands, my shoulders, they were hot to the touch. It's just like what you would imagine rheumatoid arthritis would be like, except when I went to explore this with, with physicians or doctors, they're like, no, nah, you don't have anything. Your blood works great. You know, but I mean, the pain was just killer. No fatigue, no brain fog, no nothing like that. But the joint pain was killer. And I was 23. So I just ate Advil, which escalated to indomethacin, which escalated to other painkillers. And I did that. I did that for about three and a half years. And this whole time I'm doing shows. The parallel narrative is, oh, I, I, I you know, I booked my first national tour of and you get your gun. It was actually, I like to tell the story is the very first audition I went on the next first day I was in New York. I ended up a, a month and a half out. I ended up booking it. So this is kind of a secret that I kept for whatever reason, you know, I was putting on a happy face and a smile, like everything was fine, but I was, I was hurting pretty good. And I was eating, I'm going to say eight to 12 Advil a day, you know, escalating through different times in my life. And I just couldn't figure out this joint pain. So about three and a half years into this, I was, I was in a show right outside New York city and I found this little bump on my left testicle. And I remember thinking that it was kind of funny. There's a little tenderness there and I explored it with a doctor and the doctor was like, no, 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 don't worry about it. It's, you know, cancer doesn't hurt. It's just a normal cell. Um, you know, so it's just going to be a mass in retrospect. Um, if a tumor, now this is just for all listeners, if a tumor is growing in a very sensitive spot in your body, it's going to hurt <laughs> the way he phrased that it was like it for, for, I was 20, I think I was 26. I was like, Oh, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need to do anything then. Great. I got stuff to do. I just booked my first production contract, which is like a Broadway level show. I think it was carousel at the Kennedy center. I was so excited. So production contract is like, you're going to make a living wage. You know, you're going to make like 1800 bucks a week. It was incredible. I was on the moon and this is going on and going on and I'm prepping to go do the show. And, and the pain just started to get worse and worse. Started my groin started to move into my belly. I was doing everything you can imagine to ignore this. Just like I had really ignored the joint pain, right? I was really not listening to my, my body. I was using the painkillers just to take the volume off. And so I started doing it with this pain too, not listening to my body. And one day I wandered into a, an emergency room because I could barely stand. I don't know what I was thinking when I tell this story. I'm like, what were you thinking? Why were you not running to a doctor? Didn't have health insurance at the time. And I, I found my way into an emergency room. It was, a, um, it was actually like a free clinic. And this nurse, this wonderful nurse was like, you know what? I'm just going to refer you to the ER just in case. Why don't you go up to the hospital and ER to urologist to scans? I finally woke up in this room where a doctor and all these students walked in and, and didn't even look at me. He turned his back to me. He goes, this is a male with advanced testicular cancer. And that's how I heard. I mean, you can imagine room went black, couldn't hear anything. I started screaming, you know, I was like, get everybody, get out of the room. I grabbed my clothes. I'm in a gown, I ran out of the room. And you know, that was, that was, this, that was the start of the journey. Ended up getting on a plane five hours later. My dad's like, come home now. Went right to the ER. Further scans revealed. It is obviously metastasized to all the lymph nodes in your belly, around your left kidney, vena cava running to your heart. 
it was it was this situation where oh my god life had changed really really quick so we came up with this plan right to get through this immediate emergency situation freddie we're going to do surgery all right freddie we're going to do as much chemo as you can take you know we the max we max out on testicular cancer is four rounds five hours a day you're going to do a week two weeks off come right back in and hit it again we'll see if the cancer is gone cancer wasn't gone We'll operate. We'll cut from your chest to your pelvis. We'll take out all your organs. We'll cut out the lymph nodes. We'll put everything back in. That was supposed to be this nice little, you know, two-day operation and you're out called the retroperitoneal lymph node dissection. It turned into 12 days of me and feeding tubes, not eating, body wouldn't wake back up. Incredible, incredible experience. And eventually I was declared cancer-free. And you would think you're like, okay, this is where I call Oprah. This is where I write a book. I beat cancer. Everything's great. And really that's, I can tell you that that's where it started to get really dark. You know, the trauma from cancer and surgery. And here's another funny thing that I, 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 because I don't get a chance to tell this story in long form while I was in the hospital for 12 days. And while I was going through chemotherapy on these really high doses of steroids, my, all my pain went away. I was normal. It was gone. And I remember, I remember being like, oh, nice coincidence. You know, not, I'm like, you have cancer. <laughs> You're not thinking about um, the body's inflammatory process, or at least I wasn't. So I almost had like three months of no pain after this, two and a half months. And then Moving back to New York City, it hit me like a ton of bricks. It was just like, and again, I remember this day. It was like one day it was just back tenfold. And I just started to, I started to do a little digging in this time. You know, the scar tissue from the surgery is like twisting my intestines. I'm rushed to the emergency room every two or three months. One time they ended up cutting open the whole scar again, taking out a foot of small intestine stitch you back up as you can imagine by this time my body's pretty reactive to surgery so i went into the most unbelievable chronic fatigue i totally understand what when people say chronic fatigue and you realize the laborious nature of tying your shoes is enough to put you to back down for a nap i had that day or i would walk to the subway to try to go downtown and i would make it halfway lean against a tree and i'm like uh-uh you know, every step was just like, oh, like walking through heavy gravity on the moon. And, you know, it just started to snowball. And I really remember thinking like, man, I am in trouble. What am I going to do? And this kind of brings me to that point around me bringing to my knees in Midtown, you know, and I knew I just had to make some dramatic lifestyle changes dramatic. And that's really where I, you know, that's where I started. That brings me back to that point. It's that's where I started to do some of the things that got me to a point where I can sit here today and be really fluent with my words and be clear and work a full-time job and, and add, add quality to society. <laughs> so Freddie, talk to us about how you stepped up from the bargaining phase of your journey to the acceptance phase and how that allowed you to begin to create the new Freddie. 
Yeah, I think it's just being so humbled by the human experience. I Now I could put words to it and tell you that the only thing we can do is life in this life is to have strong roots and allow ourselves to bend as the human experience comes with a strong wind. So Freddie, talk to us a little bit about the phases that you went through before you got to acceptance. Talk to us about, you know, a little bit more about the denial phase, because it was clear that you were going to get information that you wanted, i.e., I'm fine. So you denied your illness. After you denied your illness, you got to the point where you, you got the shock of it, this diagnosis. And, mm-hmm. and we do need to get to your Lyme diagnosis yes. as well. <laughs> but you, you, had this, you had this horrific diagnosis. And was there any anger more than you showed by throwing everyone out of the, uh, out of the room when you received uh, the rude diagnosis? Um, and then talk to us about, you know, your sadness and your depression. Let's go through the stages of this grief that you had gone through before you finally got to the point where you could accept your situation. Yeah. You know, there, I'll, I'll be honest with you. There was one time that I had a, a moment of outrage or grief. Um, and it was, it was coming out of the hospital for the very first time and, and sitting on my, my brother's porch, my brother graciously lo- allowed me to live with him and supported me through that whole cancer experience in Rochester and Rochester, New York. And I just had one moment where I just broke down and, and the grieving of, of losing like my dream job and my career and my vitality. I had about a half an hour where I, I cried really hard and grieved. Other than that, like I said in the beginning, I, I do have this, I do have, there's a nature of me that is wired for, for joy and acceptance. And I really rolled with the punches. You know, I, I, I rolled with the punches through chemotherapy and all the surgeries, even, even being in the hospital, you know, not being able to go to the bathroom and having a tube in your penis. Like I just, I would laugh at that stuff and, and find the humor in it. And, you know, I think the, the grief came with the, the chronic nature of what would I would discover to be is the Lyme. You know, I often say that there was so much empathy and understanding and like community, everybody swiping in with let's buy you groceries and find a place to live. And, and here's, here's fundraising, here's $700 to pay your rent. Once I was done with cancer and I, I started to have these moments of chronic fatigue and, and, and really discovering what would be Lyme, there was no empathy it was like, well, you're fine. It's all in your head. You know, you're, why can't you get up and get over it? What, what's the matter with you? You know, why aren't you, you know, why aren't you coming out and engaging and coming out to the bar and having a few beers and yada, yada, yada. So I was isolating myself um, when I would normally have these opportunities to be social with other human beings, just because I really, that, that was where I allowed myself to see how sick I was. So I made this cocoon. You know, and as an actor, I was very good at putting on the happy face and kind of painting this role that I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. But the grief came from, you know, shortly after that moment in in Midtown, you know, I just, like I said, I started to just look for, I started to look outside of the, the sphere of influence, which I had. You know, I started to read about people having mysterious illness and what kept coming up was Lyme disease. 
And what came up beyond that was how do you figure out if you've got this horrible thing? And, you know, so I, I, I'll be honest with you. I think I even, I think I, I don't think I could test for Lyme disease in New York state. I think I had to draw my own blood and like take a train to Jersey and mail it from this, you know, a friend's mailbox just so they would allow me to test it. And so I, I did finally, I went to a lab called iGenX and got a bunch of bands, you know, however many bands it was positive in California. They were like, yeah, you got Lyme. So Freddie, before we go forward with your Lyme diagnosis, I want to talk to you about what we describe here at Think Boot Camp as the casserole moments. Uh, the mm-hmm. author of the book Bitten, Chris Newby said that when she had been sick from her Lyme disease, she never had her casserole moments, meaning neighbors weren't coming and bringing her the casserole and extending her to sympathy. And she said, if I had cancer, I would expect that people would have given me casseroles. Well, you have the perfect scenario where you have the contrast where you had your casserole moments and then you didn't. So talk to us about that contrast between the diagnosis with uh, cancer and the way the community treated you when you had that diagnosis versus your diagnosis of Lyme disease. And why do you believe the casserole moments went away? Why do I believe? Yeah. Interesting way to, to look at it. You know, there's, there was definitely in that phase, I was, I was a little bit resentful because I, I did feel so bad. And there was, again, there was, there was not a lot of empathy towards what I was going through. And And I don't know if that's my fault because I hid a lot of what I was feeling and a lot of what I was going through. I had been very public with, you know, I wrote a blog called Dr. Fred about going through cancer at the time and, and had so much incredible support around that. And the Lyme or the chronic fatigue or the chronic joint pain, a lot of that stuff I I really did. I really did. From my experience, I hid. I wasn't, I wasn't, it it wasn't something I really talked about. Not until like the last few years, to be honest. I don't know if I wanted, I think, I think internally I was like, this kid's been through enough. What a sad story. I don't want to keep coming (laughs) coming out with all this, you know, look at, look at what this awful stuff that he went through. And, you know, I do remember times where you know, going to my mom or trying to talk to my dad about Lyme disease. Now, my mom's a nurse. So my mom was, you know, she was more, more empathetic, but there just wasn't an understanding. People don't know. They don't know what it is. You know, they think they associate in their minds that Lyme disease is a a bullseye rash and you take antibiotics for two weeks and you're going to be good. But what I was, I was trying to paint this picture from my experience through my symptoms and my testing that, that I was dealing with something much more severe than anybody else's understanding. And I understand, I, I personally, I understand, I would make stories to validate why I didn't have a casserole moment. I was, who am I to figure out my own blood work and go send a test off to California and not rely on my general practitioner to figure this out for me. You know, you do sound like a little bit of a crazy person. It's, it's not so different from what we're dealing now in, in, in the world of 2020, 2021, lots of people have different understandings of, of what's, 
or, or a different experience of what's, what's going on. Everybody has a different opinion. And for me to show up as this citizen scientist, when essentially I'm a, a music theater kid, I, I understand, I could totally understand that. All right, you know? well, let's, let's hit the pause button there for a second. We interviewed a young woman, a brilliant young woman named Max Noir, who said to us that the greatest gift that we can give to ourselves and the greatest gifts that we can give to the people who love us is self-advocation. That if we let them know how we feel and we let them know how, what our needs are, then we don't, we can exchange expectations for appreciation. Talk to us about whether or not you would do it differently if you had to do it again. And would you be more of a self-advocate where you're letting people know what your needs are rather than trying to grit through it and not let anyone know how you're feeling? I would never change anything about the experience or life for that matter. I'm, I'm a firm believer that, you know, it's, it's just, it's for me, all this is happening for me as I, as I grow and I learn, you know, how to, and I've learned from this experience and picked up these incredibly valuable lessons. Like you're saying that, that yes, yes, please don't hide your feelings. Remember the, the, the purpose of this podcast is for you to share your experiences with others. So they don't have to go through the pain. So I'm not asking you whether or not you would change your experience, which I know you wouldn't because it's been a beautiful journey for you. But do you think if someone who are listening to this were to be in the same place that you were in, do you think you could help them avoid some of the pain or the suffering that they're going through if they took a different approach than the approach that you had taken at that time? And what I mean by that is encouraging more self-advocation. I always encourage that. And for me, the way that's phrased is a little triggering because I've been through that stage of wanting so badly to, I think that's why we share our stories, right? We, we try to, we share our stories in, in the effort to have people not make the same mistake. And at the end of the day, the phrase save other people from suffering and the human experience. That's a little, for me, that's a little bit of a God complex. Like it's just, we, we do this together. We share together. We hurt together. We bleed together as human beings. And I don't, I personally don't think I can save anybody from your story. I, oh, the only thing I can is show up and I can hold up a mirror of what I've done. And hopefully you see something resonant in that reflection and you're inspired internally to make that change. But so just, yeah, that, that, yeah, no, so but, that's but, what that but, brings up for me. But let's talk about that a little bit, Freddie, because look, uh, success yeah. does leave clues, right? And one of the reasons mm-hmm. why we've been so attracted to you as a story, and we've been so excited to get you onto our podcast is because you went as low as you could be. You were on your knees bargaining. Yes. And then you get to the point where you are where you are, right? So what clues can you share with our listeners that could help them to shortcut their success? Because I'm not saying that, that, that we are critical of, of suffering, but we certainly should shortcut suffering or, or, or offer some clues about how people could shortcut their suffering if they can. So let's talk about that and, and what clues you can share for folks on their journey. Yeah, you know what I would have to say is that, you know, if we're, if we're, gonna, if we're gonna frame it in that light, then you've got to honor the the experience that your body is going through and and what whatever that however that sits with you there there is there is beauty in that suffering there is i i love the image of when we're telling when we're saying all this and i'm i'm can envision myself kind of going through all these like these plot points right you know i'm seeing myself as this 
a wa- a member of the walking wounded. You know, just just so hurting inside and I'm in, I'm in I can actually see it like through these lenses looking back into time. And that what comes up for me is why didn't you just why weren't you more vocal about what you were going through? Because I think you've got to use that litmus test. You know, if my best friend had come to me and told me what they were going to, what they were going, living up and waking through every single day, I said, why wouldn't you share that with me? I'll be here for you. I'll drop everything I can. And I don't know if it's the brain fog of going through chronic illness or the the systemic multi-organ <laughs> um, dysfunction, dysregulation that happens with Lyme. That I, that I just was not clear enough to do that. So in retrospect, if, if I had just taken a moment and I had written down what I was experiencing, and I almost think like if I would have handed someone a letter and said, this is what's happening, help. But I couldn't do that at the time. You know, I was so blunted for whatever reason. You know, being on the other side of it and being so clear and so energetic now it's easy to see what the solution was, but you know, my, my advice or my, what I would pass to someone else going through this experience, just write down what you're going through, write down how you're suffering and in, in, in a letter and mail it to all your friends and family and say, this is what I need help with. And, and I, I, I gotta believe many, many people would, I think you'd be shocked with how people would show up for you if you just let people know how bad you're hurting. And I never did that. So that, that would be the biggest, that would be the biggest thing. I talk about it now that I'm good. You know, now that I feel good and I'm, I'm now it's okay to share the story. Cause now it's a win. It's a victory. It's got the Hollywood ending. So now it's acceptable, but I just, I wish I would have uh, done that in an earlier time that that's the big one. So Freddie, talk to us about how you got from your cancer diagnosis and cancer treatment to your Lyme diagnosis and why you knew there was something else going on other than a, an additional challenge relating to either your cancer diagnosis or your cancer treatment. Well, I mean, you know, the, the long-term systemic inflammation was that was so prevalent and, and always at riding on the undercurrent of this whole story. I was, I was definitely ignoring that at times and then it would rear its ugly head and I would just be taken down with, with the reality of how my body felt. You know, the fact that this, like this pendulum swinging both ways, you know, through the cancer treatment, it would, it would swing back and forth and I would be again, experiencing this, really, really intense, um, just crippling joint pain that I couldn't seem to mitigate or I couldn't seem to make long-term gains with that awareness. And I think from, from, if I'm going to trace it like a timeline, if I'm going to move through the experience of cancer, and then I'm almost on this other side and I'm, I'm experiencing this chronic joint pain and inflammation you know, for me, what allowed me to kind of get to the next plateau was seeing some of the biomarkers or metrics through different questions I was asking. For me, this is looking at something like the IGENX labs. It's looking at heavy metal toxicity. It's looking at chronic Epstein-Barr infection. You know, I had these discoveries around along the way 
where I'd find, oh, this doctor down in Florida is writing about these four viral titers that if they're four X, what the body would normally handle, then you've got this, you've got an imbalanced bioterrain. Similarly with these labs from IgenX, similar with uh, a hair mineral analysis test where I'd come back and like mercury is like 99%. And so I started to get all these, just like looking at the dashboard on a car. And I started to look at all these different meters that my body's telling me, you know, something is, is, is not right. And initially what I would do is I would chase, I would chase that information and be like, boom, got it. I've got chronic viral infections. When I figure out the chronic viral, I'm going to be great. So and funny, then, and then just around, right, <laughs> just so keep going. Let's, let, let's pause there again, because you're, you're, you're giving us so much and I don't want to just rush past it, even though this story is a really powerful and beautiful story. And there's, you know, and there's nothing more powerful than the comeback story, as you just sort of pointed out a moment ago, where, you know, you, you, you were at your low and of course now you're at a very different place, but let's, let's hold on to the, to the story for a second and let's focus on your dashboard of tests. How did you get all of these tests and why did you take all of these tests? And was this something that you yourself decided to do to create your own dashboard? Or was this something you were encouraged to do with some of the doctors that you were working with? This is all me. This is being a, this is using the Google button and being a, a citizen scientist and reading any book I could get my hands on. I wish I had the name of books that I read on Lime in front of me, but you know, have you ever, have you ever written out the name of Lime books? on a piece of paper? I have. Have you ever looked at the, the, the horrific titling? It's like never cured, hope without disease, Lyme madness. It's like, you know, Lyme needs a new PR agent, but they are just terrible, terrible, heavy, heavy titles. And every one of those books for me had this great you know, there were there were layers of different discoveries, whether it was Dr. Horowitz or, you know, why can't I get better? You know, you you name it. Suffering and silence. Oh, they're coming to me now. But I would I would pick let me up. give you a good one. Fred. There is, yeah. there is Unlocking Lime by Dr. Rawls. That's a very empowering book. So let's, that's let's, a good let's, one. Yeah, that's a good one. But he's a great speaker and such a light. And he he's so empowering in the way he frames it. So there's there's definitely different colors of the spectrum. But for the whole. Um, it was a lot of garnishing information just through reading, reading blogs or other people's, other people's stories of going, going through Lyme and chronic illness. It was, it was, um, I'm trying to think if there was a doctor that I'm just going to scan quickly. You know, I had a lot of doctors that I had a lot of doctors that would escort me out of the office, literally because of the surgeries that I had been through that I was a couple of people just said, you're such a liability. I'm not going to do anything with you. I had bagged this one doctor. I was in so much pain at one point um, from the scar tissue in my belly twisting. And, and like I said, sometimes the twisting would be an obstruction of the bowel and, and that, that level, that pain with the joint pain, with the chronic fatigue, Man, it was just, there were so many times I was in tears and I would walk in and just want so badly for a medical professional to say, hey, I've seen somebody just like you. It's going to be all good. And I didn't really get that. I found practitioners that were open to the work or research I had done and found it resonant enough to trust me, to allow me to do, you know, 
to allow me to sign for the IGenX test or you know some of some of these were allow me to go in and 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 do some research and look up what a Myers cocktail was for IV infusion they would at least you know entertain it but to say that I had somebody that showed up as really like a Lyme literate practitioner I, I can't I did never I never found that person okay so Freddie but I'm still not clear on how you teased out your Lyme from your cancer, right? Because I think most people going on the journey that you went on would have been, would have been focused on cancer and the side effects of the various surgical and medicinal procedures that you went through with the cancer. How did you tease out the cancer from the Lyme and how did you ultimately get to your Lyme diagnosis? So in 2006, I was diagnosed with cancer in November and treatment lasted through 2007. And at the end of that big hospital stay, a doctor walked in and said, you're cancer free. So for me, um, cancer, I sort of put a nail in the coffin. Aside from going and getting checked up every, you know, three months, six months doing MRI scans. And, and, you know, there's a little anxiety bomb for anybody who's been through the experience of cancer that goes along with that. But I was really done with cancer. You know, I was really, I was focused on healing, healing the scar tissue, dealing with the abdominal adhesions and whatnot. And as I said, it was like a, an absence of pain for three months after cancer. And then that chronic pain came back. So right, I was so really back into dealing with that chronic world pretty immediately after someone telling me I was cancer free. So because the doctor told you you were cancer free, that allowed you to pivot from cancer to something else, which is what led you to your Lyme disease diagnosis. Exactly. Now, why did you believe the doctor when you had been failed by so many doctors before that? I had a great doctor. He was amazing. Dr. Palpatu. Amazing. Just right as rain, <laughs> you know, right as rain. I just, when you have an amazing surgeon and amazing doctor and, you know, he was one of the, he was one of the people where I initially came into the hospital and he took my hand. He's like, I, he's like, you are not going to die. We've got this. He said that to, I never questioned him, not for a minute, not for a minute. So Guiding light. So that guiding light allowed you to now pivot from focusing on your cancer to focusing on the other symptoms that you no longer believed were a part of your cancer journey, which is what allowed you to get to your Lyme disease diagnosis. Exactly. And because it had been there before cancer, remember? Well, that's what I want to get to now. So yeah, let's talk about how you think your Lyme disease, which wasn't diagnosed until after your cancer journey, impacted your diagnosis with cancer, meaning do you believe that the, that the immune system challenges created by Lyme disease put you in a position mm. where your body could not defend against cancer and ultimately resulted on, in you going on the cancer journey first? I have theories. <laughs> <laughs> as, as, as a, as a non, uh, you know, a non-medical professional, uh, with absolutely no history in oncology or virology or chronic illness, I, I would, I would have to imagine that with low level chronic inflammation, that there is immune dysfunction that could have made space for my body, not dealing with that tumor. Now, 
it's my belief from this journey and working with so many people, talking to so many people, whether it's on my podcast or coaching or people that have just messaged me online, that the emotional component in chronic illness or disease or cancer is far greater than what people give it power for. And and I've not I've not talked about this too much ever in an interview. I I am writing a, a you know putting together a book of the experience, and what I'll tell you is is that I I personally believe that a big contributor to the whole shenanigan, that whole story is is me not allowing my body to process emotions, and. I'm a big fan of the book, The Body Keeps the Score, and the body's going to put it somewhere. You know, I was the oldest child uh, of a family with, you know, there's some alcoholism in the family. My parents got divorced when I was as 18, what, whatever that trauma is. But I, I was not someone, remember I said I was wired for joy a couple times, not necessarily someone to want to display the hurt or display the fact that I was suffering or display the fact that I was in pain. It's hard for me to access those emotions. So I would imagine, and I, I do think about this a good, a good deal, that it was, it was my inability to really allow my body to feel that it was a, the major contributor to, to me getting sick. So let's let's dig into that a little bit more. And I know Matt is very anxious to start asking you some questions, <laughs> but let's dig into that a little bit more, Freddie. And that is, so it sounds to me that you were a physically fit person, but not an emotionally fit person. And you believe that you were not emotionally fit because you had a lot of baggage that you did not even allow yourself to deal with prior to now you're getting sick. So give us that, give us that outline of your lack of emotional fitness the impact you believe that had on your body's capacity to heal or for your immune system's ability to fight off the various illnesses that you were facing, both Lyme and cancer. Yeah. It, you no, know, interesting ways to phrase it. I, I would say that it's not that I was emotionally unfit. It just was not, it was not, a. it was not expressing yourself. Here's, here's a great way to frame it. Um, I grew up doing, we, we did Western rodeo. We rode horses in upstate New York, you know? So we often use the term in our household, cowboy up, tough up, you know, grab the belt buckle, move on. Um, that was that, you know, that's a, that's a, you know, you're sort of bypassing the human experience when you're telling someone to do that, buck up, you know, you know, stiff upper lip, whatever it is, you know, uh, careful the words you say, children will listen is a great lyric from Stephen Sondheim's Into the Woods. And I think, I think as, as harmless as that statement is, cowboy up, you're going to take that into your DNA if you hear it enough as a child. You know, so I think, I think there's nothing there's nothing bad. It was just, you know, I, I hate to put it through the, the, the filter of, oh, you've got good skills or bad skills. It's just, they were the skills. Well, no, and but, I but think Freddie, that, 
Well, let's pause yeah. there. Wait. So, I mean, yeah. look, the, the title of the episode that will run before this episode is Cowboy <laughs> Up. We actually interviewed a woman who Stop. was raised on that same philosophy, right? And, and, and had to grit through a lot, which resulted, unfortunately, in her having an extended journey. So wow. I don't see this as a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's not. But, but, Okay, so let's stay with that, Freddie, because because I believe that philosophy, which is essentially do not listen to your body, do not listen to your emotions, is a bad skill. It's a negative skill. And because you now have carried with you this negative skill and you're discouraged from listening to yourself emotionally and physically, you were, in fact, given a um, a philosophy that resulted in you having an illness that perhaps you could have avoided. Talk to me about that. Oh, man, you got to remind me. I got to tell you a story at the end. Um, I have this great anecdotal story at the end, but I'm not going to tell it now. OK. Um, yeah, it's I get so stuck up on this. Now I got to tell the parable. <laughs> so. <laughs> So there's this guy in this village. This, we're going to go all the way back to Egypt. And this guy and this young woman are shopping in the market. And this guy walks up and he gives him a camel. And the guy turns and looks at the girl. And he says, oh, my goodness. This guy's giving me a camel. This is incredible. So what good fortune. He gets up on the camel and he starts to ride. He's like, I, now I can go. I can go to the next town over. I can get everything I needed to buy for a lower cost. The guy's so ecstatic. Halfway to the next village, he falls off the camel and breaks his leg. This guy's like, oh, my goodness. How did I not see this coming? I don't know how to ride a camel. This is terrible. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. I'm in the middle of the desert. I've got this broken leg. And a half a day later comes by, and this, this beautiful harem of women come by on, on a whole another stream of camels, and they pick him up, and they take him to a town where – he learns that through his birthright, he's he's actually a king. He's a prince and he inherits all this money. He's like, oh, my God, what is this great fortune? So the waxing and waning of us putting things through the filter of good and bad for me, I, I get like it. It stops my heart. <laughs> I'm like, I can't go there. <laughs> and so I, I totally appreciate that line of questioning. But, you know, we never know. It's like, what is this thing coming into my life for? It's all this learning experience. So the idea that we can frame it as good or bad, it's just, it, 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 I get a hiccup on it mentally. It's like, my brain's like, no, won't do it. Because I look at all these things. I look at all these things, whether it was the doctor who wouldn't help me or whether it was the guy who grabbed my hand. It's like, you're not going to die. Like they're both equally amazing. And like you're saying, what I think what we're discovering is through telling these stories and, and however we, however we explain them that, you can see these moments, even though they could be labeled as bad, but they're right as rain. And, and, and somebody can see that as a gift, or you can see it as the worst thing in the world that's happened to you. But, you know, Freddie, I, again, not in <laughs> retrospect, but moving forward for people who are on the journey who really want to shortcut their suffering, right? And the purpose yeah. of our podcast, and the purpose of our page is to help people be liberated from suffering. Not that we're criticizing those who have suffered, but to try to find yeah. ways of liberating people from suffering. Yeah. I don't think it's fair to say that everything is good or everything is equal, right? Because again, this cowboy up philosophy 
that you were, you know, you were raised with and that you, that you, um, you manifested through both your Lyme journey and your cancer journey, Mm -hmm. quite frankly, were not, were, were not positive or healthy for you. And they put you in a position where you suffered substantially more than you should have. And I'm sorry, you, I know you don't like the word should, but I'm saying you use it. Then you, <laughs> then, okay. you then, then, then you could have had you not wanted to have that type of that type of an experience. And yeah. I do think we have to pass these, these, these both these positive and negative experiences on to people mm-hmm. so that they can make their own choices. Right. So yeah. So yeah, let's, yeah, we can, we can totally do that. So let's, 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 let's explore that a little bit more before Matt now takes you through the rest of the journey, which is, which is in Matt, you're so patient down there in retrospect, (laughs) in retrospect, um, you know, if you were, if your goal was to shorten this journey and to get to, you know, to get to, um, you know, the, uh, the place where you're now helping people sooner than you were able to, um, do you believe that, um, that a lot of the suffering that you went through could have been avoided had you been given the tools that, or had you developed the tools that would have helped you to be more in tune to your physical and emotional needs and been able to share them with third parties, uh, rather than cowboying up and trying to grit through everything? Of course, of course. And that's, you know, that's what I'm doing today. I'm just really today. It's all out on the table, all of it, you know, and I, I'm very, very transparent with people about what I do, you know, all, all the things, even though I feel very high vibe, but I share what I'm doing, you know, whether it's a a, a quick, quick trip to the emergency room, or it's, you know, sometimes you get really stopped up and you got to do a coffee enema or, you know, any, anything, anything I'm, I'm really, um, I've seen the value of sharing. So like you're saying that, that other people can just be, you know, you can open up the, the cage on your heart and show your vulnerability. And, and that's, that's also, that's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to do for other human beings. And it, it, it's incredibly challenging to do sometimes, you know, cause it, it is, it does, it does as, as somebody who is um, brought up with that program and that belief system, it is challenging to do. And that's why it took me 20 years to get, to get to this point. You know, it took me 20 years to be able to, to talk about some of these things. And, and I'll, I'll still have people today say, you went through Lyme disease too, because it's not something I've always, I, I would very much share the, the cancer, but, but publicly, you know, in the last probably two and a half years as when I've started to really talk about the heavy metal toxicity and the Lyme and the testing and the mold and the dark side of our, of this population, 425,000 people who are diagnosed with Lyme every year that are not validated. They're not seen. And so that has to happen at this point. So now let's take this full circle to the question that I had asked you when we first began this, and that's the beauty of self-advocacy or the beauty of self-advocation. If you are, in fact, somebody who is advocating for themselves, you're sharing your experience with everyone, and everyone knows what it is that you're going through, that's the greatest gift you can offer on this Lyme disease journey because people are learning from you, learning about you, and everyone can have a more healthy experience together. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, it's, I couldn't agree more. 
And, and that, I mean, that's what I'm, that's what I am. That's what I'm agreeing to. That's what I'm committing to is to just have total transparency on all the things that I've done that have worked and have not worked. And, and, you know, to, to say it that way, this self advocacy, that's going to be sharing both the wins and these terrible losses, you know, even when things, um, even when things don't turn out your way, you know, I think that's just, it's a, again, it takes, it takes so much more bravery to do that. And that is not the way that that is not the reinforcement or the programming behind social media. You know, social media is look, I did it. Or let me post a picture of this or this or this. Um, it's, it's rare that we, that we show the dark, the dark days. And that's why, you know, again, I've started to be a little more liberal with some of like the uh, pictures of some of the things I just, this woman just asked me from a, a really good friend, not a woman, Lauren from Lime Warrior. She goes, can you send me all like the really awful pictures of you in, in, in like, you're like ghostly, like ET washed up in the crick, all white, you know, and, and, and cut open and IVs and, and uh, yeah, I just, it was, I, I had a pause. I was like, Oh, <laughs> You know, do I really want to give over this bucket of photos that I have labeled hospital pics? And it was, I had a moment of just, you know, saying, okay, I'm doing this. It's, it's going to benefit. It's going to benefit somebody and just releasing judgment. You know, there's, there's so many, it's so multi-layered, you know, you know, there's elements of sharing some of the dark stuff. You're like, am I signaling? Is it, is this, is this virtue signaling? Is this, you know, why am I giving this photo away? Is it to get, there's so many people out there that you, um, this whole social media experience is so interesting, the interaction, you know, and it can be so amazing sometimes and so, so inauthentic other times that I, I always double think before I, before I share. But as you're saying, the whole reason we're doing this is to allow people just this opportunity to view the whole timeline, authentic experiences, highs and lows, and to pull away their own, their own gold nuggets of your story. So Freddie, I just want to let our audience know that <clears throat> Rich and I have been fighting in the chats because I've wanted to speak and he's not been letting me speak. So, um, and as you can see, my body language has been uh, pretty aggressive towards him. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> the, but I think that you hit on something pretty important there that social media only generally depicts what people want others to see. And we've been accused of only posting people that look healthy and that are doing well, because many people don't want to share photos when they're at their worst. And that's something that I think, you know, you started to do on your social media, which has been so refreshing to see that you, you, you highlight the good and the bad, the trials and the errors, and you really share your experiences to help other people. And you, you've literally have gone through every step of your diagnostic journey on social media. And I want to start by going into some of these things with you. So you, you titled it metals and microbes on your social media, and you talk about the use of heavy, uh, I'm sorry, you talk about heavy metal toxicity. So can you talk to us how you found heavy metals and how you, what kind of tests you ran and what you did to address that once you found that in your healing journey? Yeah, it, great question. And, and to say that there's multiple ways to garnish this information is an understatement. And so, you know, right around the time I was really struggling with chronic fatigue, of course, it was a chiropractor because chiropractors, 
I never thought this. I'd never seen a chiropractor. They really think outside of the box. So you can find chiropractors out there that are doing some of this. A different way to look at the body, a different way to look at the bioterrain. So I remember first initially, I did a heavy metal test where we collected my pee and we looked for metals in the urine. You know, that was one round. And then I had another doctor said, well, you can't just test your pee. You've got to take a chelating agent, which a chelating agent would be something to move metals from a tissue. And then we got to collect your pee. So then I had another doctor do one where we collected, I think I ate some DMSA, which is a chelation agent. And we then collected, and then the metals were really high. And then I had another guy go, well, no, 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 no. Urine is just, you know, that's in this, that you can think that's in the flow of life. What you really need to do is send us some hair. And of course I was bald at the time. So I think I, I clipped him armpit hair, beard hair. And this very current cellular activity of hair growth is going to show us how much metal toxicity is in your body. And I know that probably sounds, everybody in the audience is like, wait, really? You're going to tell me my hair has my heavy metals. And at the end of the day, hair is just very current cellular biological activity. And all the cells of the human being have the same DNA, but it's signaling that tells them to grow into hair or teeth or nose or skin. So the body is trying to take the junk car parts from my understanding and my, again, citizen scientist, not a doctor, and it's going to put those junk car parts somewhere. So, it will often deposit in the hair. So that was a, an, an avenue. Then I think the last one is there's this doctor called Chris Shade, and he does, I think it's called the tri-test. And what he does is triangulate. He looks at metals in the blood, in the hair, in the urine. And from that triangulation, we can really get, from my understanding, one of the most accurate metal diagnostics in the body so we can see what's going on. So I, I have done any of all of those. So Freddie, once you knew that you had heavy metal toxicity, can you explain to our listeners what that really meant? Because we know that often goes hand in hand with Lyme disease, but why is it bad to have these heavy, heavy metals in your system and how does it make you sick? Again, from my understanding and um, not a metal specialist, but from researching this body of work, we, we know that here's a great example. Have you ever heard of the Danbury shakes? No, no. Okay. So the Danbury shakes were a, a full body tremor. This is a terrible story or handshake like a Parkinson's syndrome that, that the haberdasheries hat makers would get in Danbury, Connecticut. And because they used mercury to mold the felt in these hats, they would quickly become mercury toxic and develop Parkinson's MS neurological syndrome and get these damn, it was called the Danbury shake. All the hat makers had it. So this is one of those instances throughout history. When you start reading about metal toxicity that you say, oh my God, this isn't good. The other term that we have in popular, popular literature is, uh, is the mad hatter. You know, and the idea that through melding these hats, that this felt with mercury, that that people were, you know, off their rockers, crazy. And so you start to look at these like patterns showing up and throughout history. And then, you know, some of the people that I've again, Chris Shade is, is one of the best. 
um, as far as heavy metal toxicity, Dr. Dan Pompa is another person that I've read extensively on metal toxicity. Um, Dr. Andrew, uh, Andrew, the Andrew Cutler protocol, which is a chelation therapy. They all look at what metals do to the body. So mercury takes up and I'll just use mercury as an example, because it's such a great, it's, it's such a great commonality that many people are mercury toxic. It actually takes up a receptor site in the body where a beneficial nutrient was normally go. And it actually gets stuck there just like a, like a super, super magnetic charge. And so we can see chronic fatigue. We can see mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, we can see liver toxicity. You know, if we think about the liver as the toothbrush of the body, when it's filled with overly filled with heavy metals, it just can't do its job. So things like chronic fatigue, things like low oxygen saturation start to happen and we get this full body dysregulation. Now, funny enough, I grew up working for my dad's engineering firm, which was an HVAC design and build firm. And when I was 13, you know what I was doing? I was cleaning out these metal fabrication machines with my bare hands all summer long, me and my brother. You know, that's what we did. So I can only imagine some of the uh, unique levels of exposure that I have to heavy metal toxicity. I also grew up in a high school called Holly High School. Incidentally, right next to a chemical plant called Diaz Chemical, which was eventually shut down by the EPA about three years after I graduated high school. Now, when we would go play with my friends, I would swim in the waterfalls downstream of this chemical plant. I mean, all the time, all summer long, you know, bathing in it, drinking the freaking water. So I, I, again, I can only imagine all the areas that I could have got this. I never filtered my drinking water. You know, if you go to a website called ewg.org, you can put in your zip code and you can look in from their understanding and independent testing, how many chemicals show up in your drinking water. You guys are on Long Island, right? Yes. Not cute. <laughs> so, Freddie, Not- I, can we just stop there for a second? Yes, I do yes, want to sorry, go into sorry. water testing. I have so many observations. Oh, my here. God, so I know, I know. Essentially, I think what you're saying at a high level and a simple level that these heavy metals just clog up your body and make you sluggish and make it harder to fight off anything else that may be going on in your body. Is that a high-level accurate assessment of what these heavy metals do to your body? Let me just do a one-minute side explainer of that as well. Sure. I promise I won't go off on a tangent. Um Your cells communicate through light and resonance, vibration. Think about the body is is communicating through light and vibration, which which is sound frequency. And then all of a sudden, we've got a body full of metals, which is going to change the intern. It's going to change how your body communicates cell to cell, changes organ to organ communication. You know, if we were to fill the body through fill of metals and then we're su- we're going to submit ourselves into the middle, let's say an environment like New York City. And if I turn on my computer and look for a Wi-Fi signal, there's 83 different broadbands, 2G, 5G. Imagine now this body full of metal sitting in front of all these non-native electromagnetic fields. And how does my body communicate organ to organ, cell to cell? I, I, I Now, listen, again, I'm not a scientist, but I've got to imagine that I'm just doing plus one, plus one, plus one, I'm going to have a compromised communication uh, methodology internally. And there's, there's definitely tests that can show this. Um, 
whatever we could we could go off on another two hour tangent on that but a, a really really good figure in the media popular media that had a very very high heavy metal load and started to get full body systemic arthritis and tanking organ function is tony robbins and tony robbins actually thought he was you know, I, he worked with certain friends that I have in this energetic field. They thought he was not going to make it. And he got so heavy metal toxic with mercury. I think that he, he goes, he talks on this, speaks on this multiple times. It was like 90 times the levels they had measured another, another human being. And all his symptoms were pretty much resolved when he went through a heavy metal mercury chelation therapy. So Freddie, we've had a lot of guests in the past give us very specific scenarios when they're around certain electromagnetic frequencies that they get very sick and it's a clear connection between their symptoms and EMS. Do you think that many or most of those cases were due to high levels of heavy metal toxicity and the exposure to those EMS are causing a reaction? I think it's the straw that broke the camel's back. I think metals have a seat at the table. I think environmental toxicity has a seat at the table. You know, when we talk about heavy metal toxicity, I think what's also at play is a demineralization of the body. And usually when you test heavy metals, you're going to get a reading back, especially the hair mineral analysis of what your mineral balance looks like. So mineral balance is like the good, you know, the good car parts that our body's trying to make use of things like magnesium that are involved in almost every process in the cell. And so something like it's the perfect storm, as far as my understanding, that we have heavy metal toxicity, demineralization, we've got a big viral load, we've got sexual trauma, we've got mold in the air, and then we've got this EMF sensitivity, which the only thing that I can speak to is I see people and I've read hundreds and hundreds of stories of people recovering from the EMF sensitivity by incorporating a, a neural reprogramming. So something like Dr. Gupta's program or a DNRS from Annie Hopper and without doing heavy metal chelation and without going through remineralization of the body, but incorporating healthy lifestyle techniques. I've seen people being able to go through the experience of not being able to walk into a store because it, they're so electro sensitive and then being able to move back into a 26 floor building in the middle of New York city by going through this, one of these programs where they work with the body's reactivity. So I'll reframe this and push it back to the power of the mind. And it's not that the EMF is in your head. However, we can work and talk to ourselves and work with how they're reactive to the outside environment through a neural reprogramming system like DNRS. So I do see that to to be effective. So I don't just want to say that the reason I give you that, that side story is to say that, oh, if you don't get the heavy metals out, then you're always going to be EMF sensitive. It's just not true. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a one plus one plus one equals three experiment. So, so I, I totally get what you're saying. It's really a multifaceted illness where there's so many contributing factors. And the one thing that I think many of our guests are probably interested in, why are so many people with chronic Lyme disease also having issues with heavy metal toxicity compared to the healthy population of the world. I think it's that I think the Lyme people are the lucky ones. I think the Lyme people are finally like the cup just ran over. Do you know what I mean? And all of a sudden they've got, they've got this opportunity to say, here we are. My body's screaming at me and now I, I can change something. I think 
I think maybe somebody that doesn't present with Lyme, long-term chronic Lyme, might present with something else. It, it might be MS. It might be Parkinson's. It might be Lou Gehrig's. But the people with Lyme, we almost have this, like the immune system becomes this, I like to say super sensitivity to the outside world. And now we've got these symptoms that are screaming so loud that at least we can change something. I have a lot of friends that went, that are on this chronic illness path with me that have, that have started this cancer journey with me that, that many have passed away. Many have passed away and some in six months. I just had a friend pass away in six months, cancer diagnosis in less than six months, cancer diagnosis in late November, early December. Sorry. Well, I mean, and that is, you know, that is, that is, that is the, that is the reality of, of the world. Some people get to, they, they fight for a really long time. I'll never forget this story. And I, pr I promise I'll get back to uh, Lyme and our, our sensitivity and our systemic dysfunction. But while I was going through cancer, there was an awesome kid who went snowboarding with me and he would come over to the house and, and, um, at the time I was, I was drinking, I was like, yes, in between chemo sessions, I would have a beer or two. I it's like, I cringed at it now, but you know, I would have a beer and he th three quarters of the way through my treatment, he was killed in a motorcycle accident. And I remember thinking I had this moment of how unfair life is. I was like, Oh my God, I'm everybody in the world is showing up. Everybody in my family we're all working to save Freddie's life. And here this kid pulls out of a parking lot and is killed on a motorcycle. And it, it was one of those, um, it was one of those moments. that was just frozen for me in life that you never, you never know, you know, you never know what tomorrow is going to bring and just the value of being present. And, and again, this, the gift, at least I'm able to show up to fight. You know, it was one of these, um, Man, it, it hits me. I can still, I still remember sitting in those emotions of that day of how unfair life is and, and how we just, we, we have no choice, but we really do have to roll with it. Um, going back to this, going back to, to Lyme and, you know, this, I like the idea of the bioterrain, the idea that there's so many inputs of information into the body, whether it's the way we experience love or the food we ate or the environmental toxicity that plays into this dysregulation of all the body's symptoms. That's what I, I've seen. I've seen the most gains I've ever made with me moving towards balance is working with the system. The least progress I've made was with monotherapeutics. So I would say an antibiotic or Plaquenil or, you know, a, a one drug therapy that was supposed to you know, this one's going to do it. And anytime I've looked at the body as a whole picture and treated the whole, that's where I've really, I felt vast improvement. So Freddie, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier and what you've labeled on your social media as water and wellness. And you mentioned the website where you can go to see the water quality where you may live. Talk to us the role that water plays in your health. You mentioned that there may be some heavy metal involvement with water that could contribute to your illness, but what other role does water play in your overall health? Well, you know, up to 70, 70% water, the human body, you know, we are water and 80% of the population is chronically dehydrated. You know, as you start to study water and look at its different varying forms, there is a very different energetic quality from the water from a sewage treatment plant and a mountain spring. 
And that is measurable. That uh, what's cool, it's measurable. And so we can actually test energetically what happens to the body from a clean cup of water and then one that's essentially dead. It's been demineralized. So I think when we think about water, there's all these different la layers. And knowing that so much of the population is dehydrated and that water comes in different forms and different qualities, that's something that I've seen an improvement in my own health, my N equals one experiment by having water that is mineralized, it's free from toxins, and it actually has a charge. Gerald Pollack looks at a, a water with a charge. And you can actually see these experiments where he'll put two glasses together and they'll have a drip that's spanning the glass and a normal non-charged water. Like you pull the glasses apart and the water just drops. But if the rims are touching, you've got that viscosity tension. You can move this glass like this far. It, it, the water bridges. There's this awesome video of this water having this electronic charge. He calls this easy water. It's a fourth phase of water. Water's like a gel or has energy to it. So he's seen through structuring water or spinning it or allowing it to throw, move down the ebbies and flows in a creek that water gets energy. And, you know, there's, you can go, you can go 10 layers deep on water. We could do a whole podcast on water and talk about clean water. I had a client that I was coaching in Arizona. We ran his EWG. Actually, first we ran his hair mineral analysis. And what came back from the hair mineral analysis was radiate. He had all this radiation in his body, you know, radioactive chemicals. And we tested his water and the water was, it was like 99% toxicity above and beyond the normal level levels. And he wasn't drinking the water. How's that? How was he getting toxic? Well, he was bathing in it. Because your skin being your body's largest organ, he was taking these hot showers, opening up all in the pores and the vapor and all of it was moving through his skin and his lungs. So in that way, he was he was toxifying, you know, when he had chronic joint pain, depression, and he feels amazing now just by changing his shower filter and the water he drank. Some people are I love it. You know, it was some people that are simple. They're like, I'm pain free. I changed my water. Amazing. Again, it's never been, I've never reacted that way. It's never been the monotherapeutic, which has been like, oh, this is the thing. For me, it's been layer after layer after layer. So Freddie, we're going to have to do a follow-up with you all about these specific topics and including, you know, water and how it can contribute to your overall health. But I do want to go back to these, these monotherapies like antibiotics versus this whole terrain approach that you were speaking about. And do you think that in, in any cases, because you, you did just describe a client of yours who benefited from a, a mono treatment of just addressing their water. So mm -hmm. is it a case by case basis or are you a firm believer that everybody should take the whole terrain approach versus the singular approach? It depends on what you want to do with your hundred years on the planet. I, I'm a terrain theory person. Like I, I love the idea that, wow, think about the untapped potential we have as human beings really thinking about and leaning into the idea that each one of us are kind of like a superhero or a superman or a superwoman or a super person, however you identify. And within all the things we're talking about is this unlocked potential because most people don't live like this. Most people don't stand barefoot on the ground for 45 minutes and allow the electrons from the earth to come up through the feet and reach all the way up into the stomach, causing a relaxation effect in the nerves. Most people don't drink 
mountain spring water that's purely mineralized. Most people don't breathe oxygen and air that's free from environmental toxins and mold. We don't eat food that's free from glyphosate. Glyphosate being a, a, the number one carcinogen in the US, that's an enzyme inhibitor that stops all the enzymatic processes in your body. You know, if we start to put these in, eventually, I think the energy in the human body gets so profound that you can't help but show up like a rock star. I think that's what's happened for me. You know, I keep I keep adding things. So Freddie, we're definitely going to go there to grounding and all those other topics you discussed. I have a list just so you know that I'm looking yeah. at right now and it's, it's, it's just off the hook. But I do want to go back to you. So do you think that there can be a benefit in some chronic illness cases, specifically with chronic Lyme disease, to take a monotherapeutic approach to maybe use antibiotics and then go on to do this combination approach where you're, you're addressing the whole terrain? Or do you think that people with chronic Lyme should just start right off the bat with doing a you know whole terrain approach rather than a monolithic approach? I think that if, you know, again, from the reading I've done, I think if you were in an experience where you had had that tick bite and you had seen the rash and you're in that first initial two weeks, then I think that could be a smart play. It, it looks like the science, you know, supports that. But I've, again, I've talked to so many people who did that and they still end up where they took the antibiotics they were good for a few months. And then two years down the road, when they went through their divorce and they lost their job, then they got really sick. So I think the terrain theory always had a, has a seat at the table. I think it's something as, as human beings and looking at the world that we've designed, that we've got to realize that the building materials, all the things that we're mentioning were, you know, not to run in fear, but the toxicities out there are the things that don't suit the human bioenergetic field. We've got to take that into account. And so always looking to bring these things in, even if you're to choose the monotherapeutic initially, I think that that's something that, um, that we're showing that, you know, as, as children are born, you know, even in the umbilical cord, we're finding 98 new toxins. We're finding 242 toxins in the amniotic fluid. So that's day one. A child is starting out with environmental toxicity above and beyond what you and I did. So I think generationally that we'll have to keep, I think we'll have to get more and more targeted onto how we create this, uh, what, what wellness is, what does that paradigm look like? So we don't have so many kids coming forward with cancer and autism and chronic Lyme, and these numbers aren't exploding. That's, so, that's my thought. So Freddie, let's go back to if somebody does choose to go on antibiotics because they have an acute case of Lyme disease and they caught the tick bite and maybe they had the bullseye rash, can that model treatment, that antibiotic treatment harm the terrain because it's a broad spectrum antibiotic. And what are your thoughts on the effects of that broad spectrum antibiotic on the terrain? What the, what the research says, what the science says is that there's a severe disruption in the flora in the body. And, and what we know is the body is outnumbered 10 to one microbes and bacteria to human cells exponentially higher. If you consider the viral biome, you know, the innate viruses that are just part of the genome. And that expression is going to be forever shifted, even from one round of antibiotics. What I didn't get into is when I was a little, little tyke, I was a strep throater. And when I say we, we called the medicine, the pink stuff, the pink antibiotics, we ate that like candy. I love getting that from my doctor. Same. Cats. <laughs> I loved it, but I was always on antibiotics always. So I can only imagine how my innate gut flora and 
I did a course at the University of Colorado to be a, a gut health specialist. And we, we talked about the biome, the human biome. And I actually, I, I don't remember the exact studies, but the interruption phase and, and forever changing of the human microbiome, the flora inside the gut, which is our interaction with the outside world. If we think about mouth to anus, it's outside, right? That's an interface between the outside world that our one line of defense system are those microbes. And if we shift that, how my body takes in nutrients, the way my body responds as far as my immune system to the outside world is forever shifted. So I think we've got to take that into consideration and just double, you know, if you're going to take the antibiotics, my suggestion would be that you double down on a quality, quality probiotic. You know, and I know there's, we could do a show on probiotics. I could talk yeah. for 10 hours on that, but we, we also want to consider, you know, our, our dietary elements that go into feeding that microbiota. So, so Freddie on, on the terrain approach, you go into some great detail on your social media. And one of one post you did specifically, you talked about breath work, mouth tapping and biohacking and, and even this box breathing, as well as an app that can track all this stuff. So talk to us about what tools you use in regard to breath work, biohacking and apps to help monitor and improve your health. Um, yeah, I love this system called the BioStrap. BioStrap is a, you know, it's a biofeedback device with a red light that you wear on your wrist. Boom. And it gives me a dashboard. It gives me oxygenation of the tissue, gives me heart rate variability. It gives me steps per day. It gives me sleep, light sleep, deep sleep, REM. So I'm going to get a score. I'm going to get a readiness score for Freddie the next day. And it can tell me whether, whether I'm ready to kick butt and go to the gym and work out and maybe write a paper or it's a day where I should go back to bed and relax and get a massage. So that's like my new tracking thing. And I, I have a bunch of systems to track heart rate variability. And for me, one of the awesome things to do as a citizen scientist without blood testing, without going to a doctor is heart rate variability. Because if we look at the science that measures the time in between heartbeats, we can see that each there's different nodes of the heart that are going to signal those time signatures. And by doing some really fancy analytics, whether it's heart math or there's a system I call, um, it's called HRV vital scan from these Russian scientists. It can actually determine the tone of your nervous system, parasympathetic, sympathetic balance. And so Freddie, I don't mean to interrupt, but can you go into yeah. more detail about that? That's a very common topic in the Lyme world. Your, your parasympathetic and your sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight mode and how to get into a healthy state with your, with your nervous system. So can you go into a little more detail about that? Of course, of course this, you know, and, and again, this heart rate variability, which is something that's just been, um, rocked my world in the last two years. The idea that when the heart has a differential in between each beat, you know, imagine, imagine like a, a imagine 300 heartbeats on a graph, right? Here's our, here's our X and Y axis for people at home. Um, and it's going to go up at a 45 degree angle. When your nervous system is in this sympathetic dominance, it's ready to run, run away. The heartbeats are like this. It'd be a tight little cluster of dots. There'd be no spread pattern, but over the X and Y axis spreading on a 45 degree angle, when you're in parasympathetic, it's like this big round oval shape over the X, Y axis on the 45 degree angle. And it's spread out. The nervous system can all of a sudden break and throttle 
it can adapt to stress when the heart rate is, has that variability in between beats. So it's an awesome metric to look at and doing things like breath work. So I talk about box breathing, as you mentioned on social media, it's in for four, hold for four, out for four, hold for four, even four or five rounds of that three or four times throughout the day can change the tone of the nervous system. It's really laying into the fact that as human beings, many people believe we're designed to eat, sleep, and play. Not necessarily to be the Tom Brady's of the universe, but you know, I get a gold star for everything I do good in my educational platform going through Holly High School. So I know I have value, I have self-worth when I'm an overachiever. So in my brain, I've got to be producing and doing and writing papers. I, I don't have self-worth for just being. I don't have that programming. So I think this heart rate variability is a great way and undeniable data to look at the fact that my nervous system is not happy. And Freddie, I've got to make some lifestyle changes. Um, we've had many guests talk about this, but never give us a way to prove what state they're in regarding their nervous system. So you just basically gave us a clear way to use a specific app to monitor the output and how to interpret the output to determine if you're in a healthy or unhealthy state regarding your, your nervous system. So what was the name of that app again, in case people listening want to download that app and start to use it to you know, look deeper into their nervous system? There's a couple. So one is called heart math and that's, that's a nice little app on the phone. And you're going to get an applicator that goes from your phone and it clips onto your ear. Now they have a Bluetooth one. If, if maybe you want Bluetooth or maybe you don't, but it clips onto your ear and it's going to run you through a session and you're going to try to sync up with the breathing pattern and look at it. And it's going to give you a green light. If you're doing a good job at balancing a red light, the one I use is called BioStrap. And the BioStrap is a monitor. I think this is like 240 bucks. And this has all the, this has so many more metrics. So it's got my respiratory rate. It's got oxygenation of the tissue. It's got the heart rate variability. It's got my readiness score. So this, I'm a, I'm a much bigger fan of this. It's also passive. I can anytime to, right now in this podcast, I could hit record. And for two minutes, it's going to run a biometric and see how stressed out this interview is making me or how relaxed and calm I'm in. The Hopefully you're relaxed and calm and not stressed out. I hope we're not stressing you, Freddie, because you're just giving us so much knowledge and we're drilling you with questions. So we hope this is not a stressful situation. No, for no, you. no, no, no. <laughs> but it's, it's funny because I do it all the time and I don't realize I, I'm, it's a, an incredible learning experience. What really does stress me out? You know, sometimes I'll do it on a meeting or a phone call. You know, I'm, I'm very aware that, oh man, I, I, it, I don't know if I want to change it or if it's a superpower, but I am an, an, I am that achiever. I am that person that is going for the gold star. It serves me sometimes, other sides it doesn't. But I'll be on a meeting and want to move a project forward so bad, and I'll do the metric, and it's like, <laughs> like, and I was in a good state two hours before, um, but I'm I'm not. I'll find myself when I'm in that state wanting to force life or control other people. I'm like, but not speaking the word. And all of a sudden, I'm not breathing. Breaths are shallow. Heart rate variability drops. Oxygenation of the tissue is tanking. And then, and then I'm in this. I put myself in this state, and I did it. So it's great. And again, I I love the data. 
Well, that's an amazing tool that I think I probably am going to invest in myself and many of our guests will invest in as well. But talk to us more about mouth tapping that you mentioned in the same post that you did on social with breath work and box breathing and biohacking. What is mouth tapping and how does that help you? It, yeah, mouth, and I might've misspelled it, but mouth taping. Oh, taping, I'm sorry. Yes, no, it's all right. Um, now I got to go back and check. It's probably mouth, me. <laughs> mouth taping is I just interviewed um, the breathwork biohacker from Norway. His name is Casper. I can't remember his last name because it's, it's, it's Norway. <laughs> and it's, I had to, I had to rehearse it before we did his podcast, but he graciously offered me after listening to my voice that I had a lot of resonance in my palate. And he asked me how well I breathe out of my nose. And I said, I don't, I have a deviated septum. I've never fixed it. As, as we were talking about the antibiotics, the pink stuff, I was always stuffy and one thing that I've noticed is if I've throughout time, if I would do a, a neti pot or um, a nasal rinse with saline, I would often have low inflammation the next couple of days. And right away on that podcast, he was like, yeah, you, you oxygenate very poorly. When you do mouth breathing, you dry out the air passages in your throat and your lungs. Think about a football field worth of terrain that's over aridized. Because in your nose, we've got all these little cilia and hair, and we've got mucus to hydrate air coming in. So why don't you check your score and actually tape your mouth, put a piece of tape over your mouth. I know it sounds scary, but I just did two little vertical pieces of tape on my mouth. And I put a breathe right strip, which can upregulate the oxygen going in your nose by 40%. And my readiness score went through the roof. It was like 100 that night. It, it was crazy. It was crazy. And so I've really been laying into this. I'm trying to retrain myself to really use this nasal breathing. There's a lot of science out there on it. Um, there's a lot of science on breath work. You know, there's a lot of science for him. I really fell into the study or the science of a gentleman called Wim Hof, who does yes. all the ice baths with the um, a very different type of breathing, hyperoxygenation of the tissue, and then actually holding your breath for sustained amounts of time. And what he showed is that he could change the body's response to a pathogen. He could stop the body from reacting to a pathogen, change his body's reaction, not have himself go into a fever, not get sick, not have an over response for the immune system. And he could actually teach people that in a weekend. Freddie, before we go into Wim Hof and, and cryotherapy, I do want to touch on something you mentioned earlier before I before we lose it is you mentioned HRV and you had another post about brain waves and HRV. And, and can you go into a little more detail about that before we go on to cryotherapy? I can. So this system that we use through, um, you know, through my coaching practice, through a company I work with called AmpCoil, we have a system that works with a PC and it's a piece of hardware that plugs into a USB port. And then it's got two bracelets with, it uses galvanic skin response and it measures your heart rate variability. But what it also does on this system is it measures uh, the ECG. So predominant brainwave states. And this is another thing that you can use to quantify any modality in the world, which I I'm personally in this line world. I want to see how it works with the body. And it's something that I'll often use to quantify bioresonance or PEMF, pulse electromagnetic field, because it's hard. It's hard to quantify. How do you feel? Good, I think. It's subtle. I don't know. But we can actually see using this software, we can get a reading of the body's energetic charge. 
We can get a reading of heart rate variability, but also our predominant brainwave states. So what I see a lot of times with people with chronic illness is trending is this, if we imagine the brainwave states, we've got, I'm, I'm not looking at it right now, but we've got delta, um, beta, theta, gamma, alpha, and we can see on the left is the delta wave. Delta is 0.5 hertz. That's a sleepy, that's a brain that's asleep, right? And I'll see people come in with like 82% delta wave. They've had a cup of coffee. It's nine in the morning. Not good. You know what I mean? The brain is just, we're not, hemispheres aren't speaking to each other. And so some of that data that you see me post, you know, it'll actually take the metrics of the heart rate variability, the charge, the predominant brainwave states, and it'll scan you and it'll say, okay, against 10,000 other people, Matt, you're, you're seven years older than your actual age. It'll give your scan based on a, a subset of the population. And somebody might come in and, and we'll do a couple modalities. We'll do some red light therapy. We'll do some HRV. Maybe we'll do a, maybe we'll do an ionic foot bath and then we'll see them drop six years. Well, oh, you're, you're, you're five years younger than your genitological age curve. You're actually performing better than 10,000 other people in this, this subgroup. So it's a, it's a really cool piece of software. It's called HRV vital scan. So, so it's HRV a therapy as well as a scan, because I think you just said that they'll, you'll do some HRV. So is that a scan, but also a treatment that can it's, somehow help you? Yeah, it's, it depends. You know, if you sit with the, if you sit with a biofeedback element, so if I do it with the heart math Institute monitor, then it's like a feedback loop. So I'm watching my HRV go awesome or suck. <laughs> this one is like, it's just a three minute scan. You're not, you're, you're not necessarily working with the data that's coming back on the screen and trying to improve. You're just getting a picture, a snapshot in time of what's going on. But there are systems that use HRV as a biofeedback method and to try to improve your state. So you could do both. And when you say a biofeedback method, you mean using frequency therapy to help change the state of your brain to get out of that sleepy mode that you described. Is that correct? Yeah, from my understanding, any type of, um, of a loop that I would be able to look at a metric, a biometric of my body that I can look at it real time. And whether it's through intention, meditation, breath, or movement that I can try to improve that data. So I'm working with the loop. Um, you know, there's, there's biofeedback brainwave entrainment element too. You know, there's certain um, biofeedback elements where we can look and be actually hooked up to a little hat with electrodes on the head. And we could look at different brainwave activity and different brainwaves. And we can actually focus in on a screen Oh goodness. What's it called? I want to say, um, neurofeedback trainer is one of the systems that I used at one point, you know, I, about, it was about a 20 minute session. I would just sit with sounds and think. And, and when, when my brain went off, I would get a little skip in the music. And so I would try to get back into a state and like work with that and try to improve my, my cognition. So this biofeedback is, is two, a two way protocol. It allows you to get data on how you are, then also provide techniques to change that state into a better state. It sounds like at a high level by using music and, and thinking a certain way. And then in the way you just described it, actually skipping the music, if you fall into a negative pattern, it sounds like. Exactly. Yeah. So you can actually reprogram and repattern. The cool now, thing about that tech is that it, it's shown to stay. If you do a number of sessions, you're showed uh, to keep the improvements. It's like around that 25, 30, 40 session mark 
that that your brain keeps keeps the benefit. Talk to us more about the fight or flight loop, because we know so many people in the Lyme community who are stuck in this fight or flight fight loop from their chronic illness and they are struggling to get out of it. And what recommendation would you have for them if they're stuck in that constant fight or flight state? I always, I always try to implore people to do the basics. And when, when I say basics, I mean, what are the things that are going to bring you back into accord with nature? So spending time outside, focusing on your breath pattern, focusing on over eight hours of sleep and make sure it's quality sleep, high quality organic food. Think about the relationships you're engaging in every day. You know, just the things that you would normally, that you would know to be um, beneficial to the human bioenergetic field, to beneficial to the human being, if, if I want to break it down that way. I think that um, fight or flights, it's tough. It really is tough. I is high is as high vibe and and high energy as I present. I still my my big hurdle is being in that is being in that parasympathetic state because I want to be like Johnny on the spot and go go go. And even though my energetic charge is high, my brain waves are high. I still I still majority of the time present with a, a sympathetic dominance. And so that's that, you know, again, I, I personally, I think it's more the emotional piece that I need to continue to work with and allow myself just to feel and take away that, like, um, like the trend towards wanting to keep it inside or be allow and just being numb. I know that's what it is. <laughs> I'm like, my heart's like, yeah, yes, Fred <laughs> do that today. Um, so, so even with all this stuff and all the tools that I have access to, you know, that my, my favorite my favorite topic right now is, is, is this idea of skipping a step, you know, even with all this technology, you know, we can bypass this big step, the emotional step. It's like, we always want to get to the spot where we feel better, but there is no by bypassing that emotional work. It's not going to happen. And I see that through the data that I collect. So Freddie, talk to us about the, this other post we found on your brilliant social media. I think it's at Freddie said go for anybody who's interested to look and we'll, we'll put it in the show notes, but you did a post about move ground, light, breathe, and repeat. And you talk about grounding using your bare feet to touch the earth for about 20 minutes each day, and even ways to do it when there's snow on the ground using technology. And then you go on to describe how there's a way to definitively prove using evidence and biomarkers that it's having a positive effect on your health. So can you go into detail about that post and, and give us more information about grounding? Yes, you know, grounding is just being barefoot on the earth, the earth having a magnetic field generated by, is the, the earth's molten core, layers of iron, layers of dirt, it's all spinning, we're spinning around the sun, the earth's creating a magnetic field called the Schumann resonance. It's also generating electrons that are coming up through the soil. And as my body is a, a magnetic body, my body generates a magnetic field. Barefoot on the ground, I'm getting this electron exchange. And you could think about electrons moving up through the body. Imagine a straw full of BBs. And if I push one BB in one side, I get one that pops out of the other side. And so slowly, these electrons, which are actually BBs, they're moving up through the bottom of my feet through my shins, through my knees, through my hips, all the way to my stomach, eventually to my heart and my head. Um, so we get this, this ionic exchange and we get a decrease in inflammation. The scientist that I have to point you to is Clint Ober. 
who is the godfather of grounding. He has a book called Earthing is a Documentary, and he has all the scientific studies linked in there, improvements in pretty much every disease state across the board. And I think that you see improvements in all disease states by grounding or being barefoot in the ground because of physics. You know, we work like a battery where we work through magnetism. And so he'll do things like thermography. Thermography is a side-by-side -side temperature comparison of the body and we can see patterns of inflammation switch and you can see after a being outside for 45 minutes he's got tons of pictures in his books um and i feel it i personally have a a reduction in inflammation and, and pain i notice a shift in mood um depressive thoughts you name it i'm in new york city right now for this interview and it's it's cold um it was at least yesterday yesterday was 25 degrees in the morning so Believe me, it's a challenge sometimes to get barefoot. So as you said, sometimes you use technology. You know, he, Clint, and other people, they have things like bed sheets that are grounded. There'll actually be a silver or a, a, a sheet with met metallic elements that plugs into the ground wire in your outlet. And now let me just disclaimer this. You have to test that outlet to make sure the ground is properly wired to the earth. Normally a bathroom or a kitchen safe bet, but they actually have these little testers and it'll have three lights on it. You'll get like two, I think you'll get two lights on when it's a go. So you can have a grounding strap under your table. I wish I had one right here, but there's a bungee strap that you can put around your wrist and just ground down. And, you know, I'm working on a computer, which has like not great electronic charge coming out of it. Scientifically proven not to benefit your sperm. If you set a laptop on your lap, um, you know, we've got a, I, I actually have a pad underneath this computer that's supposed it's from Defender Shield. It's supposed to minimize the negative frequencies coming off the computer, if that's your belief system. Um, so I try to do lots of things to hack, not only like to bring in the good electrons when I'm sitting and working all day or making podcasts all day. I do try to commit myself to getting outside in nature and this is something that if you grab that book Earthing or start looking up podcasts from Clint Ober, he's got great science and great data to prove this efficacy. And my favorite thing, it's pretty much free to go outside. Freddie, how would you how would you deal with the combat the combating thoughts in the Lyme community of I'm afraid to go outside and get reinfected by a tick, but I know it's good for my health. What would you say to those people that have a fear of nature after being becoming chronically ill from Lyme disease from a tick bite? Well, first I, I want to honor that. I want to honor anybody who feels that way. And I want to tell you that you're seen because it's real. And that's a real fear. There's too many people that have been totally from their understanding, normal and robust and full of health. And they got that one tick bite and they went down. We hear that story all the time. So that's very real. From my research and understanding, there were lots of other things going on before you got that one tick bite. That that this idea that that Lyme disease. Now I, I was listening to Bill Rawls talk yesterday, and he was saying he'd love to say that it was one microbe in a tick, but I think he quotes like two hundred and fifty-two that could cause Lyme-type symptoms in a tick. There's many different microbes in there, and what this ingenious little bug has done, it's found a way to get past the immune system by going through the skin. And the other thing that I like to tell people is there's so many human beings out there with positive Lyme and completely non-symptomatic.
large numbers of the population. In fact, many people saying that that you know it's the majority of people with the Lyme bacteria in the system because we've shown that in in certain studies it can even be sexually transmitted. And there's often one partner that's non-symptomatic with the Lyme in the bioterrain. So I looked all this information about what the body has a capacity to hold and that we can be robust and healthy even with a tick infection. And to just point to the fact that if you're doing all this work, if you've rebuilt your lifestyle, if you've cleaned out, you know, from our understanding, the toxicity and the metals, and you're working towards this, you know, new idea of a robust bioterrain that, that you should be okay. And I am always posting pictures. I don't know if you've seen, I'll post pictures of ticks crawling on my hands. I'm like, talk to it like it's my friend. I know that might freak people out, but I'm not afraid of ticks. You know, I never got, I don't remember getting a tick bite. I grew up on a farm. I must have. I like lived in the dirt and lived in barns and, and I had horses and shoveled cow poop. I mean, we lived outdoors. This was our whole childhood experience. We were always outside. We slept outside. So I can't imagine I didn't. Um, but, but going forward, you know, I think I kind of have a plan if I get bit by a tick, you know, like you guys talk about, you save the tick, you remove it properly, you test it, you don't freak out. You know, maybe you, maybe you start doing some, some of the fringe things that we've known to help people from improve. Maybe you do your cycle of doxycycline right away if you catch it. But I, I wouldn't, I, again, we only have a hundred years on the planet. For me, my personal story is to live in fear and not go outside it's really going to diminish that experience because we don't have all the time in the world. So Freddie, let's go on and talk about your lights for wellness concept you use on social media. You've done a lot of posts with red light therapy. So can you talk to us about why that's so important in your daily routine and how it helps people with chronic Lyme disease? Well, again, back to this idea that the body is a battery, how do cells communicate biophotons light? This is measurable. We can measure the energetic field, the light charge off a body. And we know that the, the, the sun is composed, I think it's 48% red light. So there's a huge spectrum of sunlight that we don't get when we're indoors. And I don't know about you guys, but I mean, the experience of Lyme disease, I was indoors a lot. Very, very limited time outside. So I think about this huge spectrum of red light that we're missing out on. And this is just something that the science says is so beneficial to the human bioenergetic field. Um, red light therapy, specifically the spectrum of 660 nanometers to 810 nanometers of wavelength up to 900 is this visible red light. And we know it increases mitochondrial function. It increases adenosine triphosphate. That's the energy in the cell. It increases microcirculation. It increases beneficial brainwave states. And this is something, again, that I've taken this HRV software or I've looked at thermography and I've looked at even live blood cell microscopy, looking at the charge or the shape of a red blood cell. After we've taken it out of somebody, we put it under an electron microscope. We can see that it actually changes shape and it gets a robust, a robust circle. It can hold energy again. It can hold oxygen and hypernutrient, the tissue, neutrinize. I totally made up that word. Um, but a, a red blood cell, you know, it's five to 10 micrometers wide. That's all a capillary is in your finger. So if these blood cells don't have charge, 
if they don't have energy, they actually stack like a stack of coins. You get like 20 blood cells stacked. I've seen this under an electron microscope. They don't fit down the extremities of the body. They don't oxygenate tissue. This is a decrease in body temperature. You know, we see something like light therapy that this changes even after 25 minutes. Now, from my experience in the Lyme community with red light is that it can cause a response after one minute of red light. You know, sometimes people are, are so reactive that that little bit of energy, think about this. Think about the person that is like high viral load, toxic metals, sluggish liver, sluggish gallbladder, and all of a sudden they push energy through an organ system and your body ain't ready to do that. You know, your detox pathways are not open. Detox pathways, pathway one, pathway two, pathway three being the colon. So we've got this experience where even one to two minutes can cause a reaction. I found that with consistent use that my, I don't have seasonal depression, which was always a thing for me growing up in upstate New York or New York. It just doesn't happen. I don't get it. So I've used this for about two years. The other thing I probably use it for about three years, but I've started to use a specific model with a specific pulsed wave. That's been very beneficial for me. And I've noticed the scar tissue in my belly as well. I haven't, um, it's one of these things where it, it just, it's more malleable when I work on it. I can feel the tissue change if I go do some scar tissue work. So that's been very beneficial to me. And I would assume because we're talking about most of these diseases, um, there's a great book I love called Tripping Over the Truth or The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. They both look at the metabolic aspects of dysfunction of the cell and long-term chronic disease. And we know light therapy to benefit this. So I've seen this be like an absolute, it's just been a very easy, passive, supportive therapy that I flick the light on. I stand in front of it. I post this on social media all the time. I'll sit in front of it naked or stand in front of it naked every morning, you know, front and back. And I get great benefit. There's other studies out there to show a 300% increase in testosterone. If men have this on their testicles and we know that um, hormone dysregulation is another big issue with chronic Lyme. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that this solves for me. And, you know, for under a thousand bucks, this thing's going to last you forever. It's in your home. You don't have to go anywhere for it. The whole family can use it. You know, I'm a big fan of not to get off on a, on a, on a soapbox, which we know I'll do is that everybody on the family can benefit from some of these things. It shouldn't be the one person with Lyme. It should be the caregivers and the children. Cause even though the one person is presenting with mold toxicity and Lyme, chances are everybody else in the household had the exposure and it's just going to be till they hit their big stress event till they present with those symptoms. So I'm a big fan of bringing things into the home that are affordable. Everybody can use and benefit from. And so for a day, a, a dollar cost average for a daily investment, you know, if five family members are using the red light over three years, pennies, pennies on the dollar. Freddie, talk to us more about detox pathways. We haven't really talked about detox much, but you did mention there's three different detox pathways. So how do you detox and what recommendation would you give to our listeners to help them detox from chronic Lyme disease once they're starting to kill off all this bacteria and viruses and protozoa and parasites that they have going through their system? Well, well, I would tell them not to do that killing first 
because your body is your body is moving into a state. Remember your body's autoregulatory. You know, we talked about this HRV showing us the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. Remember your body's not betraying you. It's actually, it's trying, it's a self-preservation mechanism. So it's actually putting you in a state and slowing you way down so you can survive. It's putting to you, it's putting you to the couch <laughs> and it's saying, Freddie, stop, stop being Johnny on the spot. Please listen to your body and let's restore. So opening up detox pathways first, in my opinion, and is a real smart move. There's a, as a doctor, Dr. Todd, who is the purveyor of a company called Cellcore, which I absolutely love. Dr. Todd looks at using bioactive carbons, which have an energetic charge, which bind to some of these neurotoxins, biotoxins, much better than your average charcoal. And they actually have their program structured in a system. So it goes phase one, two, three, four, five, I think. And the first one is drainage and energy. They don't do any killing until they do drainage and energy. So it's looking at the, using things like oxygen and bioactive carbon and anti-inflammatory agents to help the body be in a place where you could even detox. For me, detoxification is using the body's largest natural organ, the skin, to sweat every day. I remember when I was chronically sick, I wasn't sweating very much. That was always hard for me to do body temperature dysregulation. So that was a must. The other thing I couldn't really do is I couldn't poop because of all the surgeries. You know, I had so much scar tissue around my colon. What I had to do is do coffee enemas. You know, that's my, that's the big detox pathway. I remember there was a time when I was really sick and I really started to fall into chronic fatigue. It was after surgery number three, I couldn't go to the bathroom. The only way I would go seven days, eight days. Imagine your body backed up with all that and, and, and all that environmental toxicity, all those biotoxins for eight days. Imagine how your brain feels. So the only thing that was a, a win for me was doing that coffee enema to unburden the body. Um, incredibly beneficial. So saunas, coffee enemas, you know, we talked about detox pathways. The body doesn't do anything if it's dehydrated. We've got to hydrate the body. And another thing is we think about, again, this HRV showing the nervous system, parasympathetic, fight or flight, um, parasympathetic, um, rest and digest, sympathetic, fight or flight. When the body's in a state of contraction, all the capillaries are contracted, the capillaries to the liver. Remember, the body's going to send blood to muscles to run away. Your body's fight or flight is get away from that tiger, get away from the threat. It's an ancient programming. So blood flow is not going to the organs of detoxification. So, so just doing simple things like a daily meditation practice. Um, it's, it, 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 detoxification for me, it can get so heady and so granular. I always point people to what brings your body back into a natural state. So it's going to be the same answers of honoring sleep, honoring sweating, honoring pooping, we can talk about binders and biotoxins and bioactive carbon to get some of the deep, you know, there's different agents that bind a magnetic charge magnetically that will go into the cell. And we've learned some of these yeast viruses, stealth pathogens, pathogens will actually be intracellular. So that's why in my experience, in my studying that things like antibiotics don't always work because they're going to go in the bloodstream. They're going to go into the lymphatics. They're not going to go into the hollow organs or your collagen tissue or into the bones, which we've seen from 
um, different dental records and fossil records that spirochetes will actually burrow into the bone like a little drill. So Freddie, what you're saying is your detox recommendation is, is really has multiple components. There's a lot you can do naturally, but you also want to use some things like binders to help get these toxins that are deep and buried within your system. So it's, it's a natural approach also with a combination of supplements to really help open up your detox pathways to eliminate all of this, this, these bad things from your body. It sounds like at a high level. At a high level, sure. And I think you've got to refer to the doctors, you know, refer to Dr. Neil Nathan, who has a book toxic, which I think is really, um, there's some great information on there. I don't think you need to do everything that he says, but you do get a good understanding of what, what a toxin is, what it, why it has a charge positive or negative. How, what, what is binding really? Cause I never really understood it. I'm like, Oh, you're going to lock it like a Lego. Right. And then it's just going to pull out of the body. It's actually not like that. It's like, it's like a pool of metal filings. And if you were to drag a magnet across the middle, you're going to get some, but you're going to pull, you're going to pull a lot of those filings into the middle. So imagine pulling all this stuff into your bloodstream. Maybe you're not ready to do that. So I think he talks about going right to the point where you almost get a reaction and then backing off. And if you push your body into a place where you can't handle it or have this horrible Herxheimer reaction or a detox response, you might've gone too far for your body and you're not honoring where your body's at. Freddie, that, that, that brings me to my next question. Do you, some people argue that Herxing is a good thing and that you should fight through it. Others argue that if you're Herxing, you should back off and balance that, that treatment where you're not Herxing too hard. So what is your personal recommendation or thoughts on is Herxing a good thing or a bad thing? I think it can be encouraging sometimes, you know, if you take a, a supplement or an herbal uh, concoction and you get a response in the body, you're like, oh, great movement of energy. Something's happening. Personally, my body has always responded better when I back off the Herx. And like I said, I just go to that place where there's a little bit, there's a little bit of a reaction. Um, and then I work there for a little bit and then I'll increase and then I'll work there for a little bit and then I'll increase. So again, think about that throttle and break and keeping the body in a state of, um, an, a state of understanding that I'm working with you. I'm not trying to push against what my body will allow. And Freddie is Dr. Todd that you referenced earlier. Is he Dr. Todd Watts that you're referring he, to? He is. Yes. So now, now to go back to, um, the Wim Hof method and cryotherapy. Can you talk to us more about your use of cryotherapy and how it could help people in the Lyme community? So yes, <laughs> I'll give you my very honest experience with cryotherapy. That is another great example of an awesome tool and it's not right for everybody because if your body's in an extreme stress response, and you're overly taxed as far as your nervous system, cold is a huge stressor. And you can definitely push yourself too far, especially if your adrenal glands are compromised. I, I personally think that I'm really careful to who I suggest that to and in what capacity. There's definitely levels where you can use it. I found even a cold shower for three to five minutes is incredibly invigorating to my brain and my lymphatic system and really gets my blood pumping. It can move energy. Whereas if I'm in a state where I'm really like my thyroid is challenged and I'm experiencing body temperature dysregulation, then an ice bath is too much. 
What I found is, is that cold therapy, if I commit to it three to four days a week with breath work, that I get a really nice reduction in pain and inflammation. I get, um, I get maybe joint tissue that's non-responsive or chronically inflamed. I find that being resolved. And that's usually after that 30 to 60 day window of working with it. I find generally that when people try an intervention, they try it four or five times and they say it did or didn't work for them. And I think that's just poor science. You've got to give it time and you've got to figure out how it works with your body. So I think there's a degree to get in for everybody. For me, the ice, the ice bath, the, the cold therapy, it just brings you into this present moment where there's no denying where you are. It brings you in your body. There's nowhere to go. For me, the cold water hits and I have to, I have to go, <gasps> I have to breathe. And sometimes that's enough. And then, so I'll take that out of the cold shower and then I'll sit and do my five minutes of box breathing. You know, it's a, it's kind of like a gateway drug into a reminder. So it's a, it's a two-part therapy. And I think through, through Wim Hof's science, he's showing that, that the breath work with the ice therapy amplifies both. You get a better effect downstream. Freddie, talk to us more about core rebuilding because you did a couple of posts on your social media as well about core rebuilding. And this has become a topic lately in, in our podcast where many people say that they're too weak when they're chronically ill to start rebuilding their body. At what point in somebody's Lyme journey should they start focusing on rebuilding their body and their muscles? Because many of us are bed bound at times. And that's, that's, again, I want everybody to be seen and be heard because that's so real. There's no, I don't think there's a right way to push through that. If you're bed bound and you're, that's your mitochondria is severely suffering. I would always lean into nurturing and nature. So whatever you can do to treat your body oh, so kind. And remember there's, this is a time for recovery. You know, it's a time to listen to great music and read great books. I am, I'm personally someone who, again, I'll, I'll start to push against the barrier where I think it's too much. You know, I'll, I'll give you a couple examples of where I, I pushed this. When I initially was done with, with chemotherapy, all I could do was walk. But it was, a, it was a very strong emotional victory for me to go to the treadmill and just walk. I felt like it was the Rocky montage in Rocky Four, where he's like fighting Ivan Drago. I mean, I had that song in my head. So it felt like such a huge victory. And that being said, if I want to look at the Lyme component, when I was really chronically fatigued from Lyme, um, it was a lot of body weight mobility work moving, you know, movement is life. Again, the walking pattern, your, your hips get a figure eight, a swivel pattern. And what people don't realize is that walking pattern is the shoulders and hips are in synchronicity and you're massaging the bowels. You're massaging the small bowel and the large intestine often stimulating a bowel movement. So even the intention behind walking can be in incredible, but I laid into a lot of yoga first. I laid into a lot of stretching and mobilizing of joints because the sitting and laying, the stagnation, it, that, that is the process of the body shutting down. So I think you've got to just push it to the limit where you're not overly sore. You know, I notice, I know where I did some of these interventions in the past and would feel amazing. A perfect example, when I first got my, when I start, first started to, to use pulse electromagnetic field and bioresonance, I would have these days where I'd be like, I'm unstoppable. And, and I would go out and I would, 
I would go to the gym and then I'd get two coffees and then I'd meet somebody for dinner. And then, you know, I would rent a dance studio and I would tap dance for an hour and I would be wrecked the next day. And I had all this energy and it felt so good to feel alive. And at the same time, you know, I've, I've just got to honor, I, in retrospect, to teach people from my mistakes, I would look back and say, you know, maybe take 50% of what you want to do when you feel that really wonderful day and not overdo it and go rake the yard and shovel all the snow and go try to do some squats. <laughs> Freddie, you mentioned something earlier about LDN. So talk to us. Did you, have you used low-dose naltrexone in your healing journey or is that something that you recommend to your clients? Uh, that's something that's become a very popular topic in the Lyme world for a therapy that may be used to help treat chronic Lyme disease. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, LDN has this really interesting um, science background for managing immune system response, whether your immune system is too low, it can amp it up. And if it's too high, it can calm it down. And I've interviewed, I think it's Sam Lebstock from Belmar Pharmacy in, in Colorado. They have a compounding pharmacy that makes LDN. And I had tried it a few times in my journey and it had not been great for me, but I kept reading these miracle stories. And of course I'd be like, oh, this sucks. Why doesn't it work for me? I'm like, I'm not having a magical experiences. So what I found was the binders and the fillers in this medicine some people use gluten, some people use sugar. And, and when they were compounding these pills, some people use gelatin capsules, which I used to react to gelatin capsules. I would get horribly inflamed from gelatin, very strange, because we're sort of made of gelatin. And I found that when I went to a compounding pharmacy, um, increase in energy, it first it was too much for me. Again, it was like so much energy that I would be shaky and jittery. And I just had to keep playing with it to find my dose. I've found, I've found mixed success with it, but I think it's been a great tool. And the wonderful thing is it's a do no harm modality. No side effects. It's not wrecking your gut. It's not an antibiotic. It's not an immune suppressant. You know, it's one of those things where it's a microdose. Normally it was used at 50 milligrams to treat nar narcotic addiction. And now we're talking anywhere from one milligram to 0.5 milligrams to five milligrams. It's this little, little itty, itty bitty capsule. And I think it can be great for energy, great for fatigue. You know, imagine the immune system is running on overdrive all the time. That's an energetic drain to the system. So I think from my understanding, what it does is it just calms that noise, that signaling that's always happening and allows your body's energy to kind of retarget and reprogram. So Freddie, the question I've been waiting to ask you about yes. is amp coil. So first, mm -hmm. if you can just, you know, for full disclaimer, if you can tell us your role at amp coil, but then how you got involved in that role and how it's actually helped you and transformed your health. Yeah. Um, so I run sales and marketing at Ampcoil. I also make all their educational videos and I'm up, I'm on the management team. So as far as direction of the company, I have a lot of, of saying that Ampcoil is a system that combines pulse electromagnetic field and bioresonance into one system with a lot of high-end software design. You can think about the combination of a pulse electromagnetic field generator and kind of like Rife technology and sound software into one system. 
it is an amplifier that's connected to a tablet and there's 30 to 60 minute journeys, which are a collection of different frequencies in a different order and in different amplitude that play to the body. So if I were to push play on that system and put it, it's connected to a Tesla coil, modified Tesla coil, which you'll see pictures online of this yellow donut, you put it on your body and you'll push a button that says relax all. So then I'm going to get 33 minutes of frequencies and magnetic fields that would benefit or create a state in the body that is all relaxed. And I can measure that again, again, on this HRV vital scan, I can watch the nervous system go into rest and digest, you know, and this is something that, this is something that for this community, nervous system deregulation is huge, huge. And I bought an amp coil sight unseen, not affiliated with a company when I bought a home with floor to ceiling black mold. And this is in 2017 after cancer, after Lyme, I was, I was starting to get to a decent place through organic foods and red light therapy and all these other things. And I had this massive mold exposure and all of a sudden had chemical sensitivity, light sensitivity. I word, I couldn't remember words. I was in the middle of a production one time and I was trying to speak the lines to my show that I was doing. I was forgetting every other word in, in microseconds. It happened, but I was having these things where I was like, I'm going crazy. And it was the day of the mold exposure. I had someone open up a wall. I was standing in the room. A dust cloud came out, floor to ceiling. It was a birthday cake in the wall. And what had happened was the people that had sold me the apartment had covered up the moldy wall with new drywall, painted over the mold with kills paint and sold me the home. So I had lived there for eight months with this, with this horrible mold. And I was so depressed. I was so angry at the world. Really? Really? Now it's the mold. I really need to go through this too. And I was at, I was of course at a, at a treadmill <laughs> at the gym walking, <laughs> just trying to move through the brain fog. And I came across a podcast with the founders of this tech talking about the system. And I got off the treadmill, walked over to the corner of the gym, pulled up my credit card, and I charged one, which at the time was it was selling for 11,000, no, 10,980 bucks. And I bought it. And I just, it was so resonant with me. I, and I was so tired of being sick. And I was like, man, I am, I am done. I'm done paying for, you know, my, on the table, people are like, oh, you can go back to doing ozone injections for $1,000 for 10 injections to go see this really negative doctor in New York City. Or I could look at the hyperbaric chamber for $6,000. And I was like, I am not pitching a half, a half of 10,000 bucks again into the universe, hoping that it gets me to where I want to be. And then I'm out the five or six grand. I'm doing something in my home. So it was this moment where I was like, I'm going to go for it. And I would say within four months, my brain was totally back to normal. My energy was through the charts, charts way more than it had ever been from my Lyme or cancer. And the really cool thing was my stomach that had still been twisting. I had these microaggressions of where every like eight to nine weeks I would be on in bed for a day puking because my gut would twist. That stopped. I got a knock on wood. Hold on. Because it was literally 15 years and I had went and down, I had even went to this place called clear passage where they work on your gut for 20 hours straight in Florida. They, they untwist your intestine manually. 
like crying for a week, this manual spirity didn't work. So within four months, it just stopped. I've had it literally two times that my gut has twist twisted since this, you know, and I don't know what's happening on my body, but the science says pulse electromagnetic field is working with the magnetism in the body. It's increasing ATP, adenosine triphosphate. It's increasing the sodium potassium pump. So all that means is the cell is breathing when you use magnetism, respiration of the cell. And we're bringing in this thing of sound therapy. So if you study the work of Royal Rife, you know, the idea that a pathogen is really just a distorted vibration in the body and you could harmonize it. I have so many different theories on how this works and functions in the body. And I've talked to people like Dr. or Professor Holly Ahern at SUNY Adirondack, SUNY Albany, who looks at this under a microscope and she's applied the sound waves to like a Borrelia or a, a strep resistant MRSA. And she goes, yeah, you can watch them stop growing. So I think it's something for me that it's changed my health. It's changed the way I think about wellness, right? I have went to a doctor once in the last 18 months. I don't want to tell you how many doctors I've gone to. It's not that I don't need doctors. It's that I finally learned enough how to manage my own, my own, my own biofeedback, my own biometrics, my own, look at my own blood work. I know how I feel. Um, I've got this stuff in my home, whether it's red lights or, or amp coil, pulse electromagnetic field that work with the energetic body. And I continue to improve, you know, energy gets better. Brain focus gets better. All of it, it just keeps going up, 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 up. And this is stuff. And I continue to track hormones and heart rate variability and thermography and stool tests. You know, I watch, I look at all the fun stuff that I'm supposed to do, but I read it. You know, I, I look at the data myself and I don't, I don't pay somebody, you know, 13, $1,400 to sit down. Who's taken a, and not to throw shade, but a lot of the practitioners, they've taken a weekend course or a 30 hour course to be certified in functional medicine. And all they're doing is charging astronomical fees to, to look at this, you know, to look at this diagnostic testing that, and that they don't always get right. So this has been an empowerment piece for me, bringing in amp coil and it doesn't replace all, it doesn't replace anything. It's a way to work with the energetic body. I think energetic therapy, energetic, um, I don't want to call it energetic medicine, but these energetic tools, that's going to be the next 20 years because all the chemical stuff is downstream of the energetic reaction in the body. You know, if you think about a cell dividing, you know, this, how does a cell know to divide into a, a human body? There's an energetic blueprint there that says it's going to be eyes and a nose and a fingerprint and fingernails. That energy, you know, that energetic print there before any of the chemical stuff unfolds into a Freddy. So. Freddie, you talked about a lot of different things throughout this podcast. And one of the things you mentioned on your social media is how to finance your chronic illness. And you shared with Rich and I offline some of the creative things you've done to actually be able to afford these treatments. So can you share with our audience how you've been able to pay for all of this while you've been so sick? Because we often get from people, well, that's great. You provided so many different options, but I'm broke because I can't get out of bed. And how do you expect me to pay for this? So how would you respond to that? Again, I just want to say um, I validate that experience and you're seen and heard for being financially busted through chronic illness because that is 
That is a majority of the people that I talk with and work with. And it's a really unfortunate thing. And that has to do with the model of that's, that's, that is how we're structured as a society right now. There's a growing gap of people who have and have nots. And that's, I think that's the anger and the unrest in social media. We're angry. Yes. You've been sold a crappy dream. It doesn't play out for everybody. Like we do, like we see in social media or in television shows. It's, there's a lot of falsehood in there. So I validate that experience. I luckily, when I was going through cancer, I had a family that allowed me to stay with them and give me a roof over my head and supply me with a place to be while I was so sick and wonderfully supportive parents. Lyme, when I got to the, back to the city and the mold and all the other stuff, I all managed myself. Um, very little financial help from anyone, sometimes in some serious debt. It just, I just want to say, like, I didn't have somebody come in and hand me a shit ton of money and allow me to pay for all this stuff. I got really, really creative. So as compromised as I was, one of the first things I did was I took and I subdivided my small apartment in New York City and I put up a wall and I made an Airbnb in 2012 when Airbnb just started. And as sick as I was, I shared a bathroom with strangers and my kitchen. And I had a little box that I slept in, in the middle and of a railroad apartment that the people that rented went around in the hallway to use the kitchen and the bathroom. And from 2012 to 2018, I always had a guest. 475 people were always in my home from all over the world in New York city. It's a great spot to, there's many, many tourists there. Luckily, we weren't in the global pandemic, so that was a thing. And it was a game changer for me. You know, there were years where I made like 13,000 bucks a year if I was lucky. And Airbnb saved my butt. It saved my butt. I should do a commercial for them. It literally was like a game changer for me. So the sharing economy, you know, get it, it really allowed me to detach with, my house or my things or my space. I really got over that quickly when I realized the income from Airbnb could help me go see a doctor or go fly across the country or go try a hyperbaric therapy session. You know, it, it, it just allowed me financial um, um, flexibility to be able to try some of these things. So that was a game changer. Um, other things that that I did were I started taking all the information that I accumulated over the years and I started to get certified while I was a lot of times on the couch in functional health coaching, gut health specialist, Reiki healer, um, sound therapy. You know, I just, cause you can go to school for anything online now and just study, study, study. So I started to build what a skill set would look like to coach someone through this process. And so I started helping other people in that way. And started, and it, it's been a real process. You know, coaching information is so cheap and it's so easy. We're drowning in information. We're struggling for knowledge, is my belief. And out of all the people that I had guides, I, there were not a lot of great coaches. You know, and I've learned, I've taken all that experience of people just kind of barfing information at me and giving me bags of supplements and bags of hope, saying, This is going to heal you. And I've really I flipped that on its head. I really look at the coaching experience of, I'm just going to hold up a mirror. We're going to look at what all the data says, all the science. 
we're going to go so slow. You're going to do one thing every two weeks. And we're going to look at 120 days. And in 120 days, we should be able to change your state a little bit, right? And really put in realistic expectations and timelines. So that has, has allowed me, that experience has allowed me to really also support myself. Um, again, you know, the other big thing that's been a big game changer for me in the last 18 months is learning what money is. Money is, from my experience, the exchange of energy. And it's something that you and I both agree has value. And right now, I look at the current monetary system and I look at the Wall Street game. And I look at, I look at the stock market. And, and you start to look at monetary policy and start to do some reading around that. You know, Anthony Pompliano, is, it's called The Pomp. It's a great podcast about money. Or Michael Saylor, who runs MicroStrategy. And they look at the fact that our government, and not to hate, I'm not trying to throw shade on everybody or just say, not everybody's out to get us, but the government, the Fed policies support the stock market, not the people. <laughs> and so we support interest rates. You know, we support big businesses. We support businesses that don't make money. You know, look at these, look at who got money from these PPP loans in the pandemic. It's disgusting. Look at what, look at what our country was given a $600 check to be out of work for a year. It's disgusting. So if you want to continue to play in that game, that monetary system, I don't think you can win. I think you've got to look at some of these emerging investment strategies, specifically in the cryptocurrency market. Um, you might find this highly controversial, but Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a closed system of monetary value. It, it completes the first law of thermodynamics. So is there's no more Bitcoin. There's 21 million coins. As people invest, we don't print more. We've printed more money in the last 13 months than... I think we, 46% of the dollars that have been, ever been printed, we've done that in the last year. So we can continue to print money, but we haven't seen a huge change in the valuation of the dollar. That's false. That's not real. And if you're not looking at that, for me, and I get really heated about this because the person that's really hurt is the person with chronic illness. The inflation we're going to experience after this pandemic is going to hurt the people that are sick the most. So what I'm actually doing right now and taking meetings with people um, I, some of the most innovative minds in this space, I'm trying to figure out a way to finance your chronic illness. And so what does that look like in a nutshell? There's banks online and you can, you can, I'm an ambassador for this. It's not a bank, a network called Celsius network. And what they do is it's a structure that functions like a bank online. And I give them my savings. And for me, storing my money in there is a digital-backed dollar. That's called USDC. They pay me up to 13.5% back on my dollar interest, paid out weekly. The other thing I can do with that money, my money, is I can take a loan against myself for 1%. I have six months to a year, depending. I can borrow a third of the net value that I have in there. So imagine this scenario. As I have my money in there in Bitcoin, it's earning 6% back. I borrow a loan against myself for 1%. Well, if I bought Bitcoin last May at $9,000, what's it worth today? $60,000. So not only did my net grow, but I've already paid back my own loan. 
So as opposed to, let's say I want to buy a hyperbaric chamber for $14,000 because I want to have it in my home. All my kids have been infected with Lyme. We've all got mold. We can't afford single sessions, but that I take a loan from my own money, right? And that I slowly, through a targeted approach, I do one modality at a time, I start to bring things into my home, slowly paying them off based on the idea that that value of my net investment is going to increase. Now, this is a theory. I'm doing this for myself right now. I'm, I've done, I'm, done with, I'm done with big bank. I'm not going to mention my bank, who sucks. 0.1% interest on savings. Dollar def- deflates by 7% a year. Again, it's looking at that game. So- Again, not a financial advisor, but this is something that I'm looking at and I'm trying to build a, a fund or a, a, a reserve that we could borrow off of. And my idea is, and if there's somebody out there that hears this podcast and you're smarter than me, please reach out to me, You know, th- however we're going to connect us on this, because I'd love to collaborate on this. I think the idea of all these people raising money for Lyme disease and handing out grants, I think that's also a losing game. Because the money's gone. What if everybody came together, Lime Warrior, the Global Lime Alliance, you know, Lime Healer United, Wellness for Humanity, and we all just had a big pool. And what we did was we allowed people a 1% loan, you know, that they had a year to pay back, two years. And that maybe if we identified the right modalities that would move them forward enough to go back to work, that they would be able to pay back that loan in some way. So that everybody's working off this big pool. And then when you're better, you don't borrow from, you know, maybe, maybe you start, maybe you sign some type of an agreement where say, you know what, if I get better, I'm going to commit 3% of my yearly salary to this fund. So other people that are sick can have this fund to borrow off of, but there's something there. And I think so that the fundraising, the charity, you know, we're raising, you know, that my biggest pet peeve is raising money for breast cancer awareness or testicular cancer of awareness. We're aware. Yes. The pink ribbon. I think we can do better than that by now. I think we need to invest in some things that are going to be a long-term sustainable solution for right, supporting the bioterrain, for supporting the future of, of a disease subset that is growing exponentially. So I just want, I just throw, these are just ideas, you know? So I, I just, I'm very, I, but I think there's something there. I have a meeting with a guy who has a, a, a Learjet next week and he's really interested because I've talked to him. I said, you know, there, I know there's people out there with more money that they know what they can do with. And it's the energetics combined with the coaching. And by no means do I think throwing money at Lyme disease will make you better. I just want to disclaimer that in a little side bubble, because I know plenty of millionaires who are still sick. They're still sick. They still feel like crap. They have access to everything in the world. And that's where that coaching place comes in, right? It's that, what is it? The Dr. Seuss, but wherever you, wherever you go, there you are. You're not going to escape the story of yourself. So if your self-narrative is this happened to you and and you can't work through that stage of being a victim, because that's very real. It's a stage of growth. Um, But if we can't work through that and we're always looking for something outside of ourselves to make the fix, then we're always going to be in that place of energetic deficiency. So it's a part of the transformation of ownership and then having somebody to come in and show you. Um, a new way of thinking about this experience of moving through chronic, chronic Lyme or cancer or whatever it is. So Freddie, I just want to say for everybody listening, you are truly 
a story of hope and inspiration because you had all this heavy metal toxicity exposure. I mean, you had cancer, you had chronic Lyme, you've been through it all, but yet you've recovered and bounced back. And it seems like you've regained your full health and maybe even more. So can you give us an assessment? If you had to reflect on your pre-cancer and your pre-Lyme life, what percentage you would say you've regained your health back? I'm, I'm at a hundred, I'm at a hundred, I'm at 136%. Where, um, where would you get what, 100, 136 is an interesting number. Can you explain to us the logic that you used to come to that number? Well, I always like to get a three and a six in there to honor Tesla's three, six, nine, um, that, that ratio, which is very healing in the universe. And that pattern shows up a lot for me, three, six, nine. Um, I never, you know, it's, it's funny. Those numbers come up a lot. Um, in, in my life, I see them everywhere. So just, just the idea that life is magical. Um, but I do feel way beyond hundred percent, way beyond hundred percent. My brain was never like this. My thoughts were never like this. I was never this effective at being a human being. So that's been really profound. It's definitely, I, I it's definitely been in the last two years. You know, sure. that's, that's really started, started to rock and roll. I still have things. I still have very real, you cut apart your intestine a bunch of times. That's my story, baby. I'm owning it. I'm going to have days where I have to lay on a tennis ball and I'm okay with that. You know, I, I don't, I'm not like, Oh man, Freddie still aren't healed. That sucks. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm total ownership of that. Um, I'll have a, I'll, I'll, I'll jump on a new binding system. You know, I'll jump on a new binder and like do this new carboxy that works with, with mold in an exponential way. And I'll be knocked on my butt for a couple of days. Cause it's all of a sudden it's pulling out stuff of, you know, the deep, dark crevices of my joints and I'll experience brain fog again, but it goes away. You know, it's a day or two. So, and, and I understand that there's this like, um, you know, there's this rebound effect with that. So I, I don't get frustrated over the, the little setbacks and hiccups. Um, do I get scared? Do you know what I mean? Do I, do I have times where I get scared where I'm, I'm going to get sick again? Or, you know, I think, I think the real thing is, is that I realize saying stuff out loud and, and, um, voicing everything I've been through is I realize the amount of trauma and emotional charge that goes along with this experience. And I, and I do think about the long-term effects of the chemotherapy that I went through or the mold toxicity. I definitely, I worry about that. I get scared to go get scanned sometimes, you know, and, and, and God, the other shoes drops and I, I would have to go through, um, cancer therapy again, or, you know, God forbid something that's wrong with your liver. I think about that stuff all the time. It is a real fear. Oh, but I got to just, I got to, I got to do the things that I'm doing, you know, to, to live with that and to, to untangle that from, from reality. Cause the only thing that's real is today. This is the only guarantee I have. I am so triggering for me when people say, oh, well, 20, 2020, it makes it really hard to know what's coming. When have you ever been a fortune teller <laughs> to know what tomorrow is bringing? Seriously. It is like the most ego-driven statement. And I hear people all the time say it. Well, it makes it really challenging right now. I'm like, it's always going to come in this vast spectrum of colors, what life delivers. So I, I, I say embrace it.
So Freddie, as a as an artist, um, and we can talk about how we define art separately. Uh, but as somebody who is a performing artist and a storyteller, you know we're at the stage of your story where we need to talk about your transformation. And I'd like you to talk to us about how this journey has allowed you to sort of shed all of the baggage your culture and your family and our society has sort of like packed on you. And then this 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 journey has been this cleansing experience for you where you've discovered your superpowers and you're now becoming a different type of artist where you're giving back to the world. Talk to us about that transformation. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting thought process because I often think about, you know, that, that my time as an artist or a singer and a dancer, you know, there are times when I'll grieve it being over you know, that I'm all of a sudden in this health and wellness, health and wellness rigmarole and podcasts and transformational technology and how that's, that's changed. And, it, and it, at the end of the day, it really hasn't. It really hasn't. This is just this new extension of, like I said, program for joy, the opportunity to love life, to be the fullest expression of Freddie which is the fullest expression of me is allowing myself to feel like we've talked about on this podcast, the, the, the grief and the experiences and express this emotional body and just honoring that and allowing, and, and not to say that, that this is a destination, but I, there is a, there is a degree of I'm here, I'm here to a really good spot, you know, and that's all been, um, that has all been allowed from, the last couple hours that we, we spoke about, you know, cancer and Lyme and chronic illness and discovery and working through these different levels of shame. And, and here I am. And it's, it really does. It's like every day now, it feels like I'm flipping the page to this, to the story that I was like, Ooh, what next? I'm very excited to turn the page and to, um, to just, I, I'm, I'm, I really want to I really want to, like you've, you've mentioned a couple times, just to be able to share my story in an honest way with integrity to give people an opportunity to act on their instincts, you know, to know that there is there. I promise you, if you feel disenchanted with a story about how you're moving through chronic illness right now, that's probably true. That's probably a good resonant hit that, that you should listen to your body and start asking some different questions if you're not getting the answers that you like. So let's talk about how you would define artists. Recently on Tim Ferriss's podcast, uh, author um, Stephen Pressfield defined art as giving back to the world. Um, do you think there's this connection between your life as a performing artist and now serving as an artist where you're really just redefining art and giving back to the world? I, I do. I think there's a, I, I think there's a total bond. I think it's just an extension of that, of that same narrative. And I, and I do love that. I mean, art really does the way you phrase that it really does give back to the world in such a beautiful way. When we make art, you know, I kind of, I, I would flip it around you know, I would ask, I would ask, you know, is both of the gentlemen on this podcast, what, how, how do you view yourself as, as putting art back into the world? Well, uh, and we'd love to answer that question in more detail on your podcast, 
but we uh, <laughs> we believe that the art that we are um, participating in creating is by creating a platform that allows each of you who are on a Lyme disease journey to add your piece of fabric to the larger Lyme quilt. And you're giving uh, folks who are on the journey an opportunity to be validated because they're hearing uh, stories that are similar to theirs. They're empowered by, uh, by learning how to listen to themselves and listen to their bodies and listen to uh, their experiences. And they're learning hopefully shortcuts despite your and my disagreement on the shortcut issue on that, both their, their diagnostic journeys and their, and their, and their treatment journeys. And ultimately, our hope is, and our, our dreams are, that people can understand the difference between living a beautiful life and suffering. We mm. see them as, 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 as distinguishable. Again, we, we can debate that more, Freddie, someday. Um, and that they can end their suffering and live a beautiful life through coming in contact with people like you. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And I, I love what you guys are doing. And I you know, I, I just try to, um, I try to, in the creation of this art, you know, we're, we're talking about art. What is, what is it like to put out your, and everything has such an artistic flair and as a background of singing and dancing and music theater, of course, you know, I try to, I try to put a degree of Lyme disease can be so heavy. You know, it can be so heavy. There's not a lot of humor in it because it is such a state, it is such a depressive state. And I, I do try to bring a little bit of lightness into some of this storytelling and, and some of these experiences. And, you know, it's, it's funny when the coffee enema goes bad, <laughs> I'll let everybody's mind at home wander to, to, to what that looks like, but you know, I've got some pretty, I mean, we could do a, Oh my goodness. I, I need to do this for my own podcast. I need to do a, um, when, when health hacks go wrong. Cause I've got some wham dingers of, of stuff that, you know, like we're saying through experimentation and thinking that everything you try might end up good. No, no. I think, I think 90% of the things that I tried to do myself turned out very bad, sometimes dangerous. And it was just because I was so tired of being tired and there was no hope that I was, I was really, um, the self-preservation or self-care sort of went out the window. And I was just, I was, there were times when I was very desperate and probably now in retrospect, I would double think about some of the things that I had, I had experimented on myself with. And, um, but that is another podcast for another time. It is. But, but in the end, Freddie, doesn't art really just help us to make sense of the world? I mean, when you're in the middle of this chronic Lyme disease journey, nothing makes sense. Everything is just difficult to understand. And, and what art really does for us is it helps us to have some structure and some understanding of our experience. And I think that's what's really been beautiful about this journey for us and what's been beautiful, beautiful about this experience that we've had with you over the last couple of hours is that you've helped us to have an understanding of a really confusing experience and a very difficult experience. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. So now, Friday, you, you shared with us in, in uh, some of the materials you gave us before uh, this interview is that your awareness is your superpower. Talk to us about awareness as a superpower and how you needed to be stripped of all the societal and cultural and family baggage that you had mm -hmm. so that you could discover your superpower. 
I, I mean, I think you just said it. That's it's, I just got stripped down. I, I pulled away a lot of the belief systems. You know, do you ever think back on, on yourself in high school and like how you interacted with other people or, or maybe you, you talked to other kids or you viewed at other kids as less than or different or, you know, I think about high school is a great example of that because you're really trying to find yourself as a child. But I think about some of the things that I did in, in high school, not, I, and I was a nice kid, but that, that were mean to some other human beings or, or bullying or judgmental. You know, I think for me that, that a lot of that was incredibly stripped away at a very young age. And I just had a level of awareness around, wow, we're all in this together and none of us really know. And we're just all trying to figure it out the best we can. So Freddie, I'm going to use another one of the Tim Ferriss tools. If you had a billboard that you could uh, post um, on a major highway, mm -hmm. uh, what would you tell people about Lyme disease so that they would not have to go on a difficult and painful journey? That's a great question. Listen to your heart. The body knows. Always turn inwards for your truth. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Freddie Kimmel. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Freddie Kimmel and his Lyme disease journey, please visit his Instagram page at Go. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to offer. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get you automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, please take a minute to leave us an honest review and rating on iTunes or on our website. Thank you for listening.